TBS. The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who wants to own a motorcycle that drives up the side of skyscrapers, my co-host. Hey, everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, Andy will be joining Dan to review this week's Once Upon a Time. Then I'll be here for the rest of the show as we are back to reviewing a bunch, but not quite all of our favorite shows, including Castle, Go On, Modern Family, Psych, Supernatural, and The Return of Doctor Who. And as expected, we're going to wrap this episode up with our Airwaves Rundown section featuring our thoughts on New Girl, Arrow, Bones, Justified, Walking Dead, and a bunch, bunch more. Yep, everything that makes you excited. And with that, we've got another thing that makes all of you listeners excited. Everyone's favorite section, News with Nico. David Tennant and Billy Piper to return for Doctor Who special. It's exciting. It's now 100% official as BBC and BBC America have confirmed that David Tennant, Billy Piper, and John Hurt will appear alongside Matt Smith and Jenna Louise Coleman in the Doctor Who 50th anniversary special. The 50th anniversary will be written by Stephen Moffat and directed by Nick Huron. The press release notes this is, quote, some of the all-star cast for this special, which certainly implies more announcements are to come. David Tennant and Billy Piper are set to reprise their roles as the 10th Doctor and companion Rose Tyler for Doctor Who's 50th anniversary special. Great news, and I'm just loving everything I'm hearing about this 50th anniversary special. I'm thinking that there'll be some more surprises thrown in there. There might be things that they might not even let us know about that may show up on that episode. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's going to be some surprise casting that they will not release. CBS renews most of its primetime schedule, including Person of Interest and Elementary. Yes. It's a good day to be a CBS series. Just like last year, the network has issued a mass renewal encompassing most of its schedule, ordering new seasons of 14 of its primetime series. Obviously, this news means most of CBS's roster will remain intact going into the 2013-2014 season. Most of this week's renewals were givens. Of the shows that are still awaiting verdicts, Two and a Half Men will almost certainly return. The network is currently in talks to bring it back, so it's a sure bet once all the necessary contracts are signed. CSI New York is a long shot, as is the Moving to Friday Vegas we used to cover in the rundown section. I'm also not liking Golden Boy's odds. It's a pretty decent show, but uh, I just don't think it's going to make the cut. Finally, Criminal Minds is on pretty solid ground. Like Two and a Half Men, paperwork is probably the only reason it wasn't included in this week's announcement. All right. FX renews Justified for Season 5. Of course. Raylan Givens will be putting on his party hat tonight, which looks pretty much the same as his regular hat. FX has renewed Justified for a fifth season. The network president, John Langriff, made the announcement this week at FX's Upfront presentation in New York. The show, which is set to finish its fourth season this week coming up, will return for season five in January 2014. Good news. NASA wants to design a holodeck. 
NASA stole the show at GDC 2013 with a surprise demonstration of a one-ton motion-controlled rover and rather awesome vision of the future of space exploration, a, quote, holodeck that allows people on Earth to experience distant worlds. Let's bring a billion people into a holodeck and explore the waters of Europa, says NASA's Jeff Norris, who told an awestruck crowd at the presentation titled, We Are the Space Invaders. To stay on schedule with Star Trek, NASA will need to discover holomatter and develop holomitters by 2364, not to mention force fields and transporters, all of which are utilized on the holodeck. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Sci-Fi picks up Continuum Season 2, sets premiere date. One week after broadcasting Continuum's freshman finale, Stateside, Sci-Fi has picked up Season 2 of the Canadian-produced Rachel Nichols-fronted Sci-Fi series. The aforementioned 13-episode second season will premiere on Sci-Fi June 7th in a new time slot, Fridays at 10-9 Central. All right. Okay, we will be covering that on ATA as well, beginning of June. Yeah, I think it's going to be you and Michael, correct? Yep, yep, we're talking about it. Yep. With it being this summer, it's for sure going to happen now. Okay. Once Upon a Time's Wonderland spinoff casts Alice and gets a title. Actress Sophie Lowe has just been cast as the lead character, the famous Alice, in ABC's Once Upon a Time spinoff project, which has now been officially titled Once Wonderland. The series takes place in a precursor Wonderland told through the point of view of Alice. Because earlier reports had it set in the same post-cursed era as Once Upon a Time, but that wasn't going to work. Alice is joined by two other characters, Cyrus, who is described as Alice's love interest with a background shrouded in mystery, and the Knave of Hearts, a sardonic adventurer, a man of action, a loner, and a heartbreaker. Cyrus will be played by Peter Godot, with Michael Sosha portraying the Knave of Hearts. Production will begin on April 7th in Vancouver after once wrapped shooting there for the foreseen network presentation. And if that they like that, they will pick it up for pilot. And then if they like the pilot, they will pick it up for series. Okay. Yeah. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Yeah, good stuff. Interesting things coming out. And that NASA news was very interesting. So I got to check that out. So with that, we're going to bring Andy in since Nico's news article set it up to talk about the Once Upon a Time episode that caused quite a debate between Andy and myself, entitled Selfless, Brave, and True. While Mary Margaret goes off on her own in an attempt to come to grips with what she did to Cora and how she, her deed has affected her, she stumbles upon August, who has hidden himself away from the others and is completely made of wood, ashamed at the action he has taken in life. And Emma is shocked when Neil invites his fiancée Tamara to come to Storybrooke. Meanwhile, before the curse was cast, August is introduced to a man of magic who may be able to prevent him from turning back into wood, but at a steep price. Yes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, before I start, I'm going to just admit it, I hated this episode. So this is like, and it's soapbox, almost the entire episode. But I will try to keep it at a certain rate. Civil. Yeah, civil. The first point I will discuss is the revelation that was Tamara and Greg are working together as well as doing some dirty dirty together. OMG. It was a twist that she was in fact Tamara, but I was still incredibly annoyed by the character and had almost wished that Greg She would have been someone else. Looking at Tamara's motives from a bigger perspective, it doesn't seem that clear to me why she's doing what she's doing, and it makes her a weak villain, to be honest. Yeah, it does. But the thing of it is, looking at it, I mean, I guess we're supposed to hate her. Do you know what I mean? She's one of those villains that just, we hate her guts, you know, because she's messing up everything that's, because hockey dory going on. Good story, bro. 
Brook. So I, I, I see that. I think that's why it's making you angry, Andy. Because she's, she's causing trouble in paradise. Not only because of that, because she, her motives w- was weak. I think that'll be explained more in the next couple episodes. Cause I, I guess. I mean, there was a theory that we threw around there that the idea that she could be Tinkerbell because she's jealous of Bay or Neil's attraction to Emma. I don't know if that works so much anymore because she kind of met up with Neil on purpose. So I guess mm-hmm. that doesn't really work so much. I don't know. I feel like Greg is being used. If Tinkerbell ever comes on the show, I want it to be Lana Van Yeah. Yeah. And, and, we, and again, it's still not been directly established that Neil is Peter Pan as well. Yeah, it's our so speculation at the moment, but I, you know, I think it could be very true, though. I agree. Yes. But I mean, I would say, Andy, to you, just don't pass judgment on this tomorrow character until we know the whole story. I guess it's it, that's a fair statement. I just felt like, you know, this was her, like, first episode of being, like, introduced, you know, this was the episode that was supposed to show us who she really is and why she's doing what it, what she's doing. It was more, like, fast-talking, more, like, it wasn't really explain what yeah. her motives are, but I guess you're right. They will explain it once they come back from the hiatus, but let's move on to the second right. point. And, and the other thing, I mean, just real quick is, you know, I think this is a good challenge for Emma at this point to have villains in the real world because I know she's capable of magic and things like that, but her power level isn't there yet to have her fight bad guys with magic. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this is a good stepping stone to have her develop into someone who's a master of magic instead of having it immediately. As I felt like for her to face Korra, she had to have magic capabilities right away. Could here she doesn't so much. She could just use her skills that she already has. Right. Yeah. Well, moving on to her next point was one of our fan favorite, one of the fan favorite characters, and, and I, he's one of my favorite characters as well, and I, I suppose I he's your favorite as well, Dan, was August Pinocchio, who returned this episode after being absent for a long while. And I was personally hoping that this return would be good. And despite that we got some insight about him before Storybrooke, I was deeply disappointed with how it, the ending was as well, which was the fairy making him a little boy again. I have nothing against that young, cute actor, but I love Ian Bailey much, much more. And I wanted, I wanted to see more Pinocchio because they write so well for him. But I think that this was a... No, go on, Dan. Go. August was one of my favorite characters in season two. I mean, season one. I really liked his character. Same here. One of my favorites. I was really, really rooting for him being a love interest for Emma. And that his way of becoming human again had to do with getting together with her or helping her or something like that. God, that Neil showed up and that kind of went out the window. And I like Neil, but I still wish, you know, there was that attraction between him and Emma that was still there. I really yeah. like that idea. I think that's much more interesting interesting maybe a love triangle thing yeah exactly that would have been so much better than hook and her and uh, neil i just think it's so much more interesting there's so much more to play with that and whatnot i do think the idea of making pinocchio a kid again one thing eon bailey seems like a guy who could get his own show and he might even be up for a pilot or something next year so maybe i feel like he wanted off the show or got out of the show doing that so i think they did that to give him a departure that didn't tick people off like i'm getting killed like the huntsman but at the same time i think they may i think the plan is to use the kid as a young side kick to Henry or someone he can interact with when he goes on his adventures. But so he's too young. Like he's too young. Cool. Henry or the a kid? Mini- the kid. Yeah. I, I mean, I get that. I mean, I just feel like now Pinocchio is just going to be in the background. Unless they do something where he grows faster than normal. And I would appreciate that. Or something, it's <laughs> that would be... again. I don't know. Do you know what would be so ironic? Because the actor who plays Mini Pinocchio was the actor who played Mini Lex. Yes. How ironic if that would be the same plot here because Mini Lex aged very fast as well. And that and eventually it would, be, you know, he would age so qu- quick that he would become the August character again. That would be so ironic that the actor who plays this kid, Mini Pinocchio, will 
eight past again. Yeah. The only problem I had with this was that, okay, she could resurrect him and make him a boy again, but why couldn't she just resurrect him again and make him non-wood? And just, you know, because he can leave Storybrooke whenever he wants. He's not it, part of... It was of... to erase his memory so he couldn't give them that information about tomorrow. Wait, That's but... all it was. That was the only way they could do it without killing him. And I think it's stupid, but that was I think that was the only way they could happen. Wait, why would the fairy want to make him forget? No, it's the writers came up with it, not the fairy. Oh, okay. Oh, That's right. That's how the writers got yeah. out of it. Yeah. Again, stupid. I don't agree with that. You know, it, it's funny with this show. They make really good steps forward, and then they make a really bad step back. And this was a bad step back. Yeah. Oh. I, I want to sincerely apologize to Milan and, and Sleeping Beauty. I gave you guys too much crap this season. This <laughs> episode was worse than the two of you. I'm so sorry, ladies. Moving on to our last discussion point was Snow's continuing struggle with the dark spot in her heart as she slapped Geppetto, yeah. an old man, after he revealed the, the lie that he made the fairy tale Snow back in Fairytale Land about the wardrobe and so on. That was honestly more interesting and one of the very few things that I enjoy with this episode. Well, it makes Snow's redemption possible and almost makes it not feel so out of character because it's almost like something's been done to her, like a spell or something that screwed her up and made her do that instead of just it being her. Right. Because I, I can see them explaining that the black spot is because she went back and forth between worlds or it's some side effect of that rather than it be her or be an actual bad person. I see. Well... Because, I mean, would, would, would you like that better, to redeem her? I want her to be redeemed, yes, but I don't complain about Snow White. I like that So much, you like it going more. evil as a personality change that'd be that left to magic or something? Kind of. I'm not really sure what to think of Snow right now, but it was, instead it was more interesting. That's the thing. I think it would be interesting if it's happening to everyone, because they're in the real world. Yeah, like the environment is not healthy for them. Yep. Yeah, sh- sure, why not? But yeah, but let's go to some quick odds and ends. If the dragon was supposed to be Muji from Mulan, then I'm sorry because that was one of the characters that once upon a time did the worst take on. But did you want Eddie Murphy? Of course I wanted Eddie Murphy! There's only <laughs> one Mushu! Oh my gosh. Eddie Murphy in this episode. That would have been epic. I don't know. Well, with yeah. all the mess that was going on in Storybrooke, Hook was able to get out of from his little prison in New York, and I want to see his expression when he finds out that his ship has been taken. Yes. I want to see an episode, if Neil really is Peter Pan, that he's Hook. I want to see an episode where they go at it. Of course, because I want to see And Hook I want to see a sword fight, folks. A big, epic sword fight. That's awesome. Of course, that might happen in the season finale. But I don't want to see Neil fly, because that sounds silly. But anyhow. Well, that is, that's all for this week's discussion about Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time returns on Sunday, April 14th with the 19th episode, Lazy. Yes. And hopefully when we return, there will be an official announcement that season three is happening. I would say it's pretty possible that it's going to happen because there are talks, and we reported on this in our news with Nico section, that there is a Once Upon a Time spinoff in the works. And it's now going to be about Alice in Wonderland. Instead of Manhattan. Yes. Makes more sense because a spinoff about, yeah. And that is a response to NBC wanting to come out with a show called Wonderland that was going to be an Alice in Wonderland show as well. But if Once picks up a spinoff, then I'm going to tell you folks right now, the Wonderland show on NBC is not going to happen. And Right. The new spinoff will premiere in between during the mid-season break for Once Upon a Time. Right, like somewhere in 2014 then. Yeah, so it'll be like Once Upon a Time will go until like Christmas time. Then there'll be a hiatus that'll show Wonderland or whatever they're going to call the show. And then it'll be back in like April or May yeah. to finish out the season Once Upon a Time will be. So that's yeah. what's on tap for the show. Kind of assuming that means we're going to get a third season. Yeah, and but because of the rate, it could be maybe perhaps the final season, but I, hopefully not because I think, they, you know, I think they will learn from the 
gonna say, but but like hopefully once we return, the season three should should have been uh, announced then. So take yeah. care, guys, and we'll see you in a few weeks. All right, Andy, thanks for joining us again. That discussion was kind of interesting today. Good stuff, though. So with that, we're going to move on to talking about the Castle episode that did something I think has been a long time coming for it. Give one of its probably most underrated secondary characters the spotlight for a really excellent episode that actually surprised me. Good title, The Wild Rover. Castle and Beckett investigate the discovery of a man found dead in an industrial cake mixer and linked to an Irish Staten Island gang. And the bar owner, Siobhan O'Doul. Surprising enough is that Ryan has a history with Siobhan from when he worked undercover in narcotics. With no leads and the case threatening to go cold, Ryan goes back undercover to help find the killer. A character that normally tends to be overlooked on Castle is Detective Kevin Ryan. Not because we hate the character or that he's an unimportant part of the show. It's more, at least I think it is that when the writers have an opportunity to do an episode that focuses on a supporting character, they more have a tendency to go with Esposito because his bachelor lifestyle is a little more flashy compared to, you know, Ryan being married and having a baby on the way. In addition, I can see an argument being made that Esposito has more character flaws with the guy being a hothead, and then there's that cool backstory with him being, you know, ex-special forces. However, as much as I love the character of Esposito, Nico and I were beginning to feel that his side stories were kind of running a bit out of steam. With the whole bodyguard romance a few weeks ago, making not a whole lot of sense. It's just we didn't like it. But with this episode, Castle's writers were able to give us something fresh and new with focusing on their supporting characters as they, in a move that was a long time coming, put Ryan in the spotlight. And how did they give us a story about a on the verge of becoming a father Ryan that was satisfied? Well, they gave him a cool backstory, which I felt ranked right up there with Esposito. Zito beat special forces. Because it was revealed Ryan was once undercover within the Irish mob and had to go back in in this episode with the intent of catching Killer of the Week. So Nico, as a huge advocator of Ryan being the center of an episode, did you see this backstory of being undercover with the Irish mob as something plausible for this character? Yeah, Dan, I did. I thought this was an excellent backstory for Detective Ryan that was perfect and fit his character very well. The only way it could have been done even better is if they had hinted at his past with comments in earlier episodes and seasons to really sell the backstory rather than springing on us as the viewers and the rest of the team in the episode. But otherwise, this was well within the character and even made sense that he would not have bragged about his success as an undercover cop. That's just not his style. So ultimately, I thought this was a very good Ryan-focused episode that really fit well within the constraints of the character that we know. So you kind of justified it as that's why it wasn't brought up before? Yeah. It's just not in his personality. It's not in his character to talk about his great successes and brag about it. He confidently did his job when he moved to Homicide and he was successful and things like that and he wanted to make his name in Homicide for his skill and not writing his previous glories or previous successes into the new job. And so that's why I think he never really talked about it. I am a little surprised that he never mentioned to Javi that he had been undercover and maybe not gone into the details. That's what I'm talking about. Like sometime in season two if he had mentioned, you know, oh, yeah, I'm good with that because, you know, I've done undercover work before. And then gone just to mention it like that. That would have made it just that much better. I don't think it was bad. I just think those kind of hints early in the season or early in the series would make for even better when they spring it on us later. 
Yeah, and I was with you. I was surprised it had not been brought up before. What you said and how you justified that made me feel even better about it than I did than how I justified it. But, the you know, the idea of Ryan going undercover, I thought did a nice job of defining his role as a part of Beckett's team. Because basically, from the things we saw Ryan do in this episode to basically, you know, survive his encounter with the mob, such as, you know, smooth talking, improvising under pressure, and pulling a slick pickpocket maneuver or calling it backup, Ryan kind of, I felt, established him as, I don't know if this is the best word for it, but I said the grifter of the group. You know, he's the guy who can basically get any information for Beckett and the rest of the team by inserting himself into any situation. So basically, if we break it down, we've got Ryan, who I just said was the grifter, you know, Esposito's the muscle, Beckett as the analytical one who follows all the facts, and Castle as the theorist who ties it all together. Now, Nico, are you kind of following me where I'm coming from on this? Or am I kind of looking too deep into Ryan going undercover? Uh, I think you're looking too deep into this whole Ryan going undercover. <laughs> I can see your leverage references there, but I'm not so sure I see it fitting this series so well. That's or this- why I said I wasn't sure if Grifter was the best word. Right, yeah. This is definitely maybe a leverage-like episode, but yeah, yeah I just don't see it. I'm trying to give a role title. I was sitting here for like 20 minutes trying to come up, what's the word, what's the word? And I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to move on because it's going to take too long. So I just went with Grifter. Throw okay. it out there. I don't know. But I, I do think, you know, with TV shows, they try to give each team member a dynamic and whatnot, you know, so they all fit together well. And I felt this kind of gave a little bit more to Ryan on that side of things. Okay. Because, you know, everyone has their, I feel like all the characters have their thing. Yeah, the undercover thing was Ryan's thing. So anyway, moving forward, Ryan didn't just go undercover in this episode because he was good at it. He actually was saving the life of his former lover, Siobhan, whom he had left behind, basically maintained his cover. And in reacting to this scenario, my mom, who's probably one of the biggest Ryan's supporters out there made an interesting statement that she felt Siobhan and Ryan had better chemistry on screen than Seamus ever had with his own wife Juliana who ironically plays his wife on the show and again I think this was just a fancy way of my mom saying that the scenes between Siobhan and Ryan were some of the most powerful parts of this episode to impress a TV junkie as myself to impress a TV junkie such as myself but she did have a point that Seamus never did act the heck out of those scenes making them what I thought was some of his best performances of the series but Nico I've got to ask, what do you make of my mom's observations? Was it something you picked up on as well? And also, did you think protecting a former lover, because Ryan always wants to do the right thing, was a viable excuse to leave his wife behind when they were trying to have a baby? I can see the point that these two actors did seem to have much better on-screen chemistry than the actual married couple, but that's pretty standard in this industry. It's a lot easier to act with a person that you don't see every day and have that good on-screen chemistry than with your actual spouse, and that's why a lot of times people who are in this business don't work together on screen. I thought the story was excellent as well that also added to their great chemistry because the story was so good as well. Because of this great backstory, it added to the chemistry that these two great actors had. As for whether him protecting his former lover, that whole aspect, I don't really think that was his only motivation for going undercover. Yeah, he cared for her and didn't want her to be in jeopardy or used by the FBI to try to get the, quote, Bible ledger but he also wanted to get the irish mob and to catch a murderer so really i did not feel like he was leaving his wife behind to go undercover he was going undercover because he felt it was the best move to catch a killer and because it was his job so i feel he just did it not because of the former lover that may have played into it and and the seeing the need for him to be undercover but the reason he went was because it was an opportunity to catch a killer and he felt it was his job and also i mean 
mean, you don't want the FBI getting one up on the NYPD. They hate that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. But I, I you know, right. I, I really feel like he, he saw an opportunity and yeah. because he was the only one who could make it work, he felt it was his duty to do it and you know he felt it was his job and he was the only one that could do it well the example he has around him of Beckett and Esposito they're people that aren't going to stop until they get their man exactly so he went along with that as well I mean that's just the kind of cops they are Mm -hmm. that's why they maintain that consistency but yeah, you're yeah. right. There's a lot of reasons why he went in there. And really, I think, you know, the very question I asked you, Nico, kind of ultimately made this episode focusing on Ryan a success. Because, you know, Esposito's concern that his partner might have been making the wrong decision or was going too far in trying to solve the case, you know, kept him highly involved in this episode. I mean, I felt the biggest problem, you know, we had a few weeks ago where the episode was focused on Esposito, you know, how he was helping that kid, kind of romancing the bodyguard, was that Ryan wasn't a part of either story. But this episode with Ryan in the driver's seat made up for that completely because Esposito was really coming with him every step of the way as best as he could be. You know, even knocking some sets into his bro when he got in too deep. And frankly, with Ryan and Esposito being partners, that's the way it should be. But them be completely a part of each other's lives. Even be the one to share with each other's spouse bad news. Like Esposito almost had to do with Ryan's wife in this episode. So, bottom line, not only did this episode do a good job of putting Ryan in the spotlight, but also address Ryan and Esposito's partnership in a great fashion as well. Is that how you felt, Nico? Yeah, Dan. I especially liked the scene where they met in the diner, and then yeah. later when they had a moment to talk about that scene, and Espo said, don't worry about it. It wasn't you, it was your undercover identity. I really liked those two scenes, and I thought they were yeah. a great set, and made, sort of showed this great interaction and relationship that these two parties have. I thought that was really good in this episode. And you're right, it was missing in the Espo episodes earlier. Right, exactly. However, with that being said, as for the guys' other half, Castle and Beckett, they kind of took the comedic backseat in this episode with some flirtation tension going on between them over Castle being reluctant about telling Beckett why he kept mentioning the name Jordan in his sleep. And from my point of view, up until probably the end of the episode, I took this argument as trivial information. And really what worked for me as the comedic lighthearted moments of this episode were the interactions Castle had while visiting the crime scene at the bakery, where Esposito commenting on the fact that the murder victim got a lot of dough was met with, yeah, I know, it's a bakery. I also got a good laugh out of Ryan calling out Castle to help surround the bad guys. And he's like, seriously? I didn't bring my vest. However, with that being said, I don't want any listeners to think I felt Beckett had nothing to do in this episode. I I felt she was very vital to the story with piecing together the evidence to get Ryan out of trouble they complete the job they set out to do in the first place which was solve the baker's murder normally a lot of shows would get so swept up in the story of a character being undercover they would sort of drop the ball got doing the task their show is meant to do every week which is solve a murder and Castle once again maintaining this consistency proves why it's probably one of the most solid procedural shows on television so Nico, throw some of your thoughts at us about Castle Beckett's diminished role in the episode. Usually when the main characters take a backseat in a series, the story suffers. But that was definitely not the case this week. I thought putting Castle and Beckett in the background was exactly what this episode needed to thrive. If we were busy paying attention to Castle and Beckett, there would not have been time nor space for Ryan to shine and the undercover story arc to really thrive. Thus, I think it worked perfectly just the way they did it. And really, they couldn't have improved it any more by doing too much focus on Castle and Beckett. Yeah, that's very well said. 
And really, in the end, I realized the importance of the argument over Castle mentioning the name Jordan in his sleep, as it was revealed as the topic of a term paper he paid someone to write for him while in boarding school. And ever since then, he's been writing so he can be worthy of the acclaim given to the paper. Honestly, I thought the backstory regarding the name Jordan was going to be revealed as something silly, like the name of Castle's hamster when he was a kid. Yeah, maybe that's a little too ridiculous, but you get my point. But... This was an interesting surprise revolving around Castle's past that was way better than the nonsense about him having this unseen dark side. I really did a nice job of tying all of this episode's plot lines into this little theme about moving on from mistakes from the past and coming clean about them. A feat that really I felt had huge benefits when it came to Castle and Ryan's respective romances, but I think Ryan's reward for returning home from being undercover was a little bit better than Castle's, because he discovered that he's now going to become a father. Which makes me wonder if we are going to have an episode where solving a case is going to conflict with his wife having a baby. Or if Castle and Beckett maybe have to deliver the baby or something like that, causing either a good or bad effect on their romance. I personally think the whole situation will end up being a good thing. But with that, I'm going to leave it to Nico to take us home on this section with his thoughts on what's in store for Ryan with his wife now being pregnant, as well as his thoughts on Castle's motivation on being a writer. Get any predictions you might have for next week's 100th episode of Castle, which is going to be great. Yeah, Dan, I think that your theory about a case getting in the way of Ryan's baby's delivery is a pretty safe bet, and I like the idea of Castle and Beckett having to deliver in an emergency situation. As for the 100th episode, I'm not sure what to expect, but I imagine since it will be Castle's version of Rear Window, it will involve Castle being a peeping Tom and witnessing a murder. No one will believe him as the murderer will clean it up, but eventually they will find something that proves Castle saw something. I really expect it to be amazing since Rear Window is my favorite Hitchcock film, so I'm looking forward to it. As for Castle's motivation to be the best writer he could be because he cheated as a kid, it was interesting but I'm not entirely sold on that being the real reason he became a writer. Just two weeks ago, it was because he read Casino Royale. So I'm just not buying it that this is the real reason. So I don't know. It was like the one thing that kind of disappointed me in this episode. Well, why don't we look at it like this? It's like Ryan, the reason why he went undercover. There was a lot of different reasons why. Yeah. So that, I mean, I guess that could solve it. That this was a factor. It wasn't the whole kid caboodle, but this is a factor that got him into writing. And again, it set up this idea of him kind of, you know, seeking redemption situation, which, you know, is always a big thing they do with characters on TV. Right. It always ends up selling. So I felt like that was an aspect of it too. But again, better than this idea. He's got this evil dark side. Yeah, we've talked that we don't like that idea. Right. <laughs> and for the rear window episode, I'm expecting funny faces facial expressions as he's looking out the window. Yeah. Like Nathan Felt is an outstanding actor to put in a situation like that. So it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. So with that, we're going to move on to an episode that was sort of kind of fun. It was actually a friends reunion. So uh, let's talk about the go on kind of cougar town like episode matchup problems. Ryan dates a recent widow played by Courtney Cox. Serving as his wingman is Anne, who ends up competing against Ryan for the widow's attention. Elsewhere, Lauren unwittingly lures a man away from Yolanda. My favorite comedic moments from this week's episode of Go On would have to be Mr. K trying on Yolanda's fake boobs, George (laughs) revealing he sat on Ryan in the bathroom thinking he was the toilet, and it turning into Cougar Town as Ryan and Anne competed for The Widow, played by Matthew Perry's former Friends co-star Courtney Cox, in the name of men everywhere, especially the wait staff at a local restaurant. Also, I've got to give this plotline a lot of credit for adding more solid development to one of the most dynamic friendships established on this show between Ryan and Anne. Basically, the actors who play these characters work together really well in that they do a nice job of walking Go On's fine line of balancing between comedy and melodrama. 
So with the public service announcement that flirting is bad, I'm going to add things off to you, Nico, with your favorite comedic moment from this week's Go On and Friends Reunion. My favorite comedic moment was the entire Ryan and Anne arc this week. Dan, you're correct that these two characters are amazing when they have a story together. And we've already had some great scenes with these two, including the wine trip a few episodes ago. And now the competition for Courtney Cox was amazing as well. Really, it was great stuff from Ryan and Anne and was my favorite part of this episode. Although you did name pretty much the other great scenes with <laughs> George sitting on Ryan. That was pretty funny when they said that. Yeah. And the the whole cutlets fake boob thing. Yes. That was pretty funny too. Alright, so we're going to move on to the other sitcom, which has finally returned after a long hiatus. That's Modern Family with a pretty funny episode that had good stuff in everybody's plotline this week. The episode entitled The Wow Factor. Claire and Cameron disagree on a landscaping matter for a house they're trying to flip, so they call on a neutral party, one of the lesbian moms from Lily's school, to settle the issue. Meanwhile, Phil teaches the kids basic repair skills around the house. Jay is alone with the baby, Joe, when Gloria and Nanny have a mother-son outing, and Mitchell counsels Lily on how to deal with a bully. This week's Modern Family was a quite strong and entertaining episode that had a laugh-out-loud moment in really every single one of its plot lines. However, my favorite comedic moment was at the very end of the episode when Luke was coaching Mitchell and Hannah ball, having him inadvertently spell out ass in sign language, and slamming his uncle's juice box on the ground to teach him the lesson that they are always on the court. Also, I know this is completely random, but Gloria flipping out at Jay with the line, How about we exchange the baby for a cheese pizza? Gave me a really good laugh, solely based on her Colombian accent. There's certain lines that Gloria says that just cracks me up for no apparent reason. So with that, I'm going to pass things on to you, Nico, with your favorite comedic moment from this week's Pretty Funny Modern Family. Yeah, my favorite comedic moment for this week was Luke's offer to eat all the spilled sugar on the floor for a dollar, and Phil telling him that he's always taught him to charge the most and people will think you're worth it. Also from Luke this week were the outtake-like scenes from the end of the episode showing Luke's drill sergeant routine with teaching Mitchell how to play handball. Great stuff from Luke this week with the sugar and the handball lessons. As usual, I love the Luke character, and his stuff was the best for me. Oh, yes, of course. And with that, I think we're going to move on to another funny show that kind of had a big milestone episode that made me go, huh, because it spoofed or it was based on a movie that's kind of hit or miss for a lot of audiences. I actually, this week, exposed this film to several different people to get their reaction to it, and it kind of made sense why I felt and other people felt this way about the psych episode. Others of you might feel differently. Nico might well, too. So let's begin the debate about the psych 100th episode entitled 100 clues. Thank you out in the end. A VIP party thrown by a has-been rock star turns into a murder mystery weekend for Sean and Gus. This is going to be a review on Psych that's kind of a mind fart for me. That might be a mind fart for all of you. As I like this episode, but I just didn't think it worked for our 100th episode. As these types of shows or episodes of a show are supposed to be about the writers putting out their A-game to celebrate such a milestone. But I just felt that Psych, this is my own personal opinion, just didn't do it here with its spoof on the movie based on the board game Clue as I feel like they've done better spoofs on movies in the past. And the reason why I'm saying this is if you look at the Blair Witch Project episode we had a few weeks ago, or the Lethal Weapon season premiere, or really any of the other past movie spoofs, there's always a lot of jokes, or there were a lot of jokes, that you didn't 
didn't need to see those movies to get. But this episode, I felt in my opinion, solely relied on seeing the movie Clue, which kind of is a problem as, and I looked this up, the movie had nowhere near the size of, you know, a movie like Lethal Weapon or even Blair Witch Project's audience. In fact, I had friends who were major movie buffs in film school that didn't even know they made a movie about the board game Clue until one of them stumbled upon it get a discount bin at a Best Buy. So Nico, tell me kind of progress forward in this review. Have you seen the movie adaptation of Clue? If yes, did this episode's take on the movie work for you? Or was it something that lived up to the movie spoofs Psych has done in the past? And if no, were you able to follow this episode and get most of the jokes without seeing the movie? Of course I've seen the movie Clue. Okay. It's an 80s classic comedy that ranks 62% on Rotten Tomatoes. Come on, Dan. I've seen the movie. <laughs> I figured you had. I just wanted to cover my bases. I'm also going to have to disagree. I thought this was an amazing spoof on the movie Clue that was enjoyable, even if you couldn't remember all the references or had not seen the movie. Of course, if you had seen the movie, it was even better. Right. Of course. The fact that they used the actual actors from the movie was brilliant. So, Dan, while it may not have been the best episode of the series, it was a damn good episode, I thought. And I thought just yeah. as much fun as the last two great episodes we've had in a row. So... I really enjoyed this 100th episode. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I had the expectation up too high in my head or what it was, but I just didn't feel like this one got there. Okay. It didn't hit the bar as the other ones. God, I told you it's a mind fart for me. I can't explain it because I'm like, I should like this episode. It just wasn't there. And so, I mean, I tried to justify it by saying, you know, slight things they did right here, in my opinion, this episode, is that, you know, they brought in the big actors from the movie, you know, Christopher Lloyd, Wesley Ann Warren, Martin Mull. I mean, this was great for the draw that our 100th episode needs. These are all recognized recognizable faces. Although I felt where they went wrong for all the people who had seen Clue, which was the majority of the audience I watched the episode with, is that they tried to generate humor from things that made the movie funny, which was the subtle comedic undertones to the dialogue. And I just think that they should have done more of a spoof on the actual Clue board game that everyone's played. It's just a wider audience because I had seen Clue, I got the movie, I'd seen it a couple times to get all the jokes and stuff. So I was laughing, but everyone else was like, yeah, I don't get this. And some of the ideas I had was maybe to make it more of a spoof on the board game, they could have paired like the various weapons used in the game like make the rope like a red rope of licorice that Gus was snacking on or kind of make the episode, make the suspects of this episode more like the characters from the game but slightly off a bit to you know appease the people at Parker Brothers who might have prevented Psych from going through with some of my suggestions you know do the licensing issues called with the game clue again I mean they did do a good job of allowing Christopher Lloyd to have a reprisal of his role in the movie as Professor Plum but Leslie Ann Ward who played with Scarlet and Martin Mull who played Colonel Mustard were characters in this episode that didn't really resemble any of the suspects from Clue, but I mean, what's your thoughts on this, Nico? I mean, do you think the episode should have spoofed the board game more than the Clue movie? I don't know. It certainly would not have hurt this episode to spoof on the weapons from the board game. But where you thought the changing the characters from the board game to completely different characters did not work, I felt that was exactly what made it a spoof rather than a remake of the film. Okay. The film tried very hard to recreate the characters from the game and bring them to life. This episode took some of the features of the characters but made them psych characters rather than Parker other characters. Okay. So I thought this was actually a strength of the episode rather than a detrimental aspect. Okay, all right. That's good. I'm, I'm glad our listeners are getting both sides of the spectrum here. Yeah, they, they told a story within the confines of Clue, but it was a psych story rather right. than, you know, a Parker Brothers story. Yeah, and 
I mean, I guess it was another issue. Maybe it's just disappointment on my part, but I felt that the the backstory revolving the rock musician was a little unnecessary. I mean, I thought, I guess, would it be a Clue theme that they were going to go all in on Clue? That kind of throw in a psych story. So that's an interesting way of you bringing it up how to look at the episode, Nico. Mm -hmm. Because it makes me kind of get it a little more. Yeah. But I think it would have been even better if it set up a role for uh, Tim Curry, who stars in the Clue movie, to come back to Psych, reprising his role as Nigel St. Nigel from the American Duos episode. Because Tim Curry is the best part of Clue. Oh, yeah. As Wadsworth the butler. So it was disappointing he couldn't be there for this movie. And Psych had pulled that stunt with Ray Wise on the Twin Peaks episode. So I thought maybe they would do that again with Tim Curry. God, it's unfortunate that that didn't work out. I guess he was too busy being uh, G. Gordon Godfrey at Young Justice. Right. Who Michael enjoys imitating. Yes. So I was thinking about Michael doing that voice while I was watching this episode as well. But anyway, I mean, could you have done away with the rock star aspect? It seemed like you accepted it. But also, do you think maybe like this rock star from A Case for the Past should have been a character that had been on a past episode? Yeah, once again, Dan, I felt like this rock star persona was exactly the type of character that makes this show so great. Yes, it would have been fun to have the great Tim Curry in this episode. But to be honest... I love the rock star aspect of the episode, the way they started off the episode with both Henry and Sean and Gus being huge fans and at the concert and ultimately the ones that got them arrested. It was, it was, yeah. I thought it was perfect for, for psych. So I actually, once again, felt like this was a great way to make this episode a very psych episode okay. without being a remake. Of course, it would have worked your way as well with Tim Curry reprising his role or having another one of Sean's past cases invite him to a mansion to inflict revenge but i like it the way it was just the same yeah they could have gone other ways and it still would have worked within the confines of the clue setup but i liked this one it it worked for me well i mean i just i guess maybe it's having to write about the episode or analyze it or whatever but i mean again this was a mind fart for me i mean mean, really selective about this episode about what shouldn't have should in it. I mean, I don't know if that was the best way to go into it. I, from what I'm saying here, it sounds like I completely hated the episode. Like, totally. God, really, there's only one episode of Psych that I hate. There's only one episode I hate. This was not the episode. It's that one where it's uh, Sean 2.0. And that's just because I don't like how that guy upstages Sean. Yeah. So, I hate that episode. But anyhow, it's the only one I don't like. This was, you know, I mean, the clue theme was very clever. I've got to give them to that. And really, a very decent argument that Nico did make. You know, they captured the essence of the movie. So that was good. But I kind of felt that they got it so much that the episode kind of shared the same flaws as the movie. I mean, personally, I like Clue as a film, but it really, it took a second watching for me to come to that conclusion. It's one of those cult films that after you see it so many times, it just grows on you. Okay, the first time I watched it, I mean, a lot of the facts of the mystery kind of, it goes over the audience's side of my opinion. There's, there's this long, drawn-out scene that starts out funny and fast-paced, and you're so distracted by the humor that Tim Curry has in that scene, you don't really pay attention to all the facts. Sometimes you miss stuff. And then after that, it kind of, like, drags, and you end up missing stuff. However, what happens in the movie is great actors like Christopher Lloyd, Tim Curry, got the late Madeline Codd, who this psych episode was dedicated to, does a very nice gesture on the show's part, are enough to inspire a second viewing just to get all the details straight and i think the same thing and this is going to be my conclusion here on this is i think the same thing can be said about the psych episode that it's better on the second watching like many of the tv shows community spoofs you know in our reviews of that show we've talked about oh this is better on the second viewing wasn't it the haunted house episode of community that i was yeah. kind of on the fence about and then yeah. i watched, went back and watched it i really enjoyed it the second time but if you haven't watched the movie clue i would say watch it first as it's available on netflix instant watch and then watch the psych episode because it 
will cause things like Sean randomly telling Gus at the end of the episode, let's go home to our wives. It'll make it make more, much more sense. Because my dad hadn't seen Clue, and he's like, why the heck would Gus say that? So I think it'll just help you. You'll appreciate it more if you watch Clue first, especially if you're a hardcore psych fan. You'll just enjoy it. And again, I would say Clue might be responsible for a lot of psych's humor over the years and where some of the fun stuff of the show has come from. So Nico, I mean, do you think it's one of these episodes that's better on the second viewing? Yeah, I do. I do think it was better on the second viewing. It gets better upon watching it a second time, but not for any other reason than you get a chance to catch all the jokes you missed the first time. I would agree that this episode was perhaps much more fun for me because I have seen the movie Clue multiple times and really enjoy it. But since anyone listening to this discussion has already seen the episode, it does them no good to really tell them to watch the movie first. Rather, we should be telling them to go watch the movie and then rewatch this episode and see if they enjoy it more the second time. I think this episode would have been great regardless, but I'm glad I had seen the movie first because that just made it so much better for me. Yes, do that. Do what Nico said. Forget what I said. I, I, I'm not thinking straight. Again, mind fart review. That's why. So Yeah, and with the alternate endings, I don't know if you were able to catch them, Dan. I didn't actually watch them yet, but I do know that they are available on the psych page on yep. USA.com. And that's uh, cool that they did that because the Clue movie actually did that yeah, as well. I, I think this episode sort of missed the boat in not having that classic Sean line saying the butler did it. Yeah, that I been- know. That would have been so great, much like the scenes we got with Castle earlier this season on that show. But otherwise, you know, I I really did enjoy this episode. They just missed a great opportunity in that, in not having that, you know? Well, I felt Uh, that's why people voted for him. Yeah, yeah, really. I wanted to see him say, the butler did it. I, I think that's why the voting went the way it did. But now I just want to ask from your point of view, because it's not a thing a lot of TV shows do where you get to vote on the suspect at the end of the episode. Right. And I think a lot of people were excited about this instead of some of the crazy things Y5 always done, because I don't think anybody really cares about that show. But uh, this time around, I mean, do you think it played a factor in making it more difficult for the writers to, you know, wrap up the episode or explain it all? I mean, do you, did it hurt? I don't think it really hurt it, but I mean, do you think it made it more complicated for them? No, because I think they shot the episode so that any of the endings would have made sense with okay. what they had done in the episode up to that point. In fact, you know, I think that they shot it so that the first three quarters could have gone to either any of the suspects that you could vote on. And then they had it set up so that it went, you know, I think that it was, I thought it was well put together. And maybe, yeah, it makes it a little more difficult to to do that in the initial writing. But I think they set it up from the start to be that way. So it wasn't more difficult or things didn't not work because of that. Well, and Psych has such a crazed fan following on the internet. I mean, it, it was perfect to do it for the show. Yeah. It's one of those rare ones that works and stuff. I just didn't know if it, the production schedule is crazy for a TV show. Right. And for them to do four endings of the episode or three endings on top of it, that's a lot of work. So cats off to them on doing that. Finally, even though they were kind of hard to pull out of the subtle dialogue that made up most of the humor of this episode, just because it went by so fast, <laughs> I did want to wrap this discussion up with us continuing our tradition of mentioning our favorite comedic moments from Psych, and this episode especially. And for me, I thought it was the funny stuff designated to, I guess, a universal audience. I guess it was the moments that the audience actually laughed with me that I watched this episode with that I enjoyed. So I'm going to say I liked the pet panther in the mansion's front yard who could maul your face off. The challenge the characters had with pronouncing the butler's name of Clisby and 
everything to do with the chocolate room, which I was disappointed we didn't get to see. But I did laugh at how Gus stumbled into a room filled with his greatest fear, which was toupees. That was great concept. Also, as a huge movie fan, I was glad that Christopher Lloyd threw in his most famous line of into the episode. That was great. You can't have a psych episode with Christopher Lloyd without him saying that. I mean, Agreed. Perfect. So, Nico, I mean, what was some of your favorite comedic moments for this episode of Psych? Yeah, the running around scenes, which were directly out of the movie, those were great. The fact that Christopher Lloyd, Leslie Ann Warren, and Martin Mull all guest starred in the episode. The Aussie-like ramblings of Martin Mull's character and how only Billy Lips could translate for him, much like Sharon Osbourne has to for Ozzy. Yeah. I particularly like when Sean realized he didn't call you a gay Snoopy. He said you're their number one groupie. <laughs> I too enjoyed the chocolate room stuff, but like the toupee room even better and how Gus was nearly catatonic crying on the floor. Really, there was so much good stuff. I can't name it all here. And that's why I really loved this episode. Still, no one can run around like Tim Curry runs around in yeah. the actual Clue movie. He's running, running around with the knife in his hand. Yes. <laughs> It's all good stuff, yeah. Oh, I just, oh, I love it. God, Clue is a very funny movie, folks. Especially if you watch it with people who appreciate it. So, here's to hoping that, I guess, the next 100th episode of a popular TV show put its own twist on a mystery movie, which is This Monday's Castle, will, I guess, come out better from my point of view than this psych episode. Hopefully I won't be grouchy about it, because I felt kind of grouchy about this show. And I don't know if I should have been. Maybe Wednesday night was just a bad night for me. I don't know. It was off my game. But anyway, for you psychos out there that were disappointed with this episode, never fear, because I do think the big epic tribute to Psych that I expected this episode to be is coming in the form of the epic two-hour musical episode, which I know showrunner Steve Franks poured blood, sweat, and tears over, meaning that there's more goodness to come from this show, despite some of you, like myself, kind of thought this episode was a miss. But now it's growing on me a little more. So I guess we'll say this was a win to me now. (laughs) <laughs> nice so that's the review on psych and the mind fart is over because supernatural i think we're going to agree on a lot more with this episode that was rock solid and i don't think there's any questioning of that so let's move on to the supernatural episode that was titled after a great nbc show entitled freaks and geeks Sam and Dean meet up with an old friend, Chrissy Chambers, and discover that a hunter has taken her and other orphans in and is teaching them how to be hunters. Dean is suspicious of the hunter's motives, while Sam is interested in how the man is giving the orphans a home life, something he never had. When Supernatural first introduced the concept of the men of letters with the Winchesters meeting their grandfather, I've been eagerly awaiting the day where Dean would take on the role of mentoring a new younger generation of hunters. Now this episode set the eagerly awaited story arc up in terrific fashion. First off, if you go back and listen to the podcast where we reviewed her first appearance on the show, I absolutely hated the Christy Chambers character, who was the daughter of a hunter that was captured by vampires. I felt she was whiny, arrogant, and complained way too much, kind of like Charlie on Revolution, without the constant crying. But here, Chrissy was a much more mature character, as she was basically forced to grow up fast into a full-fledged hunter due to her dad being killed by a vampire. Now, this plot device, even though it really kind of sucked her Chrissy's life within the universe of the show, made great strides forward with warming me up to the character, especially now that she can interact with fellow young hunters who are all in the same boat. So, Nico, did you think this episode went a long way in improving the Chrissy Chambers character compared to her last appearance? Absolutely, Dan. I 100% agree, which is a little unusual yeah. today as we've sort of been on opposite sides on a few shows this I week. Know. But here we are 100% on the same page. 
She was annoying the first time around. We maybe even to the point we despised her character in the early part of that episode. We got borderline. Yeah. But this version of the character, this episode was much improved, much improved. And I thought it really made this episode a lot better than if they had brought that same character back. Well, everybody that they bring back, brought back in season eight are better than their previous appearances. Yeah. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Truth. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree, too. Now, time and time again, especially during the Zero Gamble years, Dean really, he's at his best as a character, not as a broken-down drunk, but as a mentor or hero to young kids. God, this episode hit that philosophy right on the money, ranking this amongst one of my all-time favorites. Right up there with the season one episode, where I became a fanatic of the Gene Winchester character, when he took on the character who was stealing the life force of children when they were sleeping. And what gives us a great performance from a hero? A great villain. Because that's exactly what we got here in this episode. Normally it's a pet peeve for me with this when they use human villains, as I think it goes against the concept of this show. But this time it worked perfectly, because the villain went right at the jugular of what pushes Dean and even Sam's button. As this guy, a former hunter named Victor, functioned as an evil version of Bobby basically took in and trained young hunters while trying to give them as much of a normal life as possible. But the only problem with this was Victor made the kids of this episode into hunters by sending a vampire to kill their families, thinking that he was creating the next stronger generation of hunters to deal with heavy level threats like Leviathans. So Nico, give us your thoughts on this episode, having a human villain like Victor. And if you thought he really got to Sam and Dean on a deep personal level. So I actually thought that this Victor character was onto something with the way he was training the next generation of hunters. Not the part about killing their families and all. That was what made him the monster this week. But before we knew he was bad, he provided a good home for the kids, made them go to school and live normal lives, and then hunt on their free time. This was a brilliant strategy, and if Sam and Dean want to be involved or train the next generation when they recreate the Men of Letters organization, they could learn from Victor's model. Minus the whole creating hunters by killing their families and working with vampires. (laughs) This betrayal by Victor was what really got to Sam and Dean in this episode. The fact that a fellow hunter could go to such lengths shook them to the core and had to make them wonder what others may be willing to do to win the war against the things that go bump in the night. So yeah, it definitely got them thinking, both Sam thinking good and then probably Dean and Sam both kind of shaken and not sure where they stand with other hunters if this hunter who they had once worked with or you know had knew from the past had gone so astray of what was considered normal or you know good well i think it made him realize oh man we need some order here yeah because there's people running around like it's the wild west yeah and i think that that you're absolutely right that's going to be part of the reason that they're going to try and reestablish this men of letters and use them and I think Dean is going to be that liaison we talked about and we'll get into that in a little bit right well and that that was the crazy part and actually the scary part of this episode a lot of things Victor was doing was right yeah and made sense even trying to get the best types of people to become hunters I mean all of those things made sense but he was treating it almost like they were at DEFCON 5 and I don't know if they're that bad I mean the apocalypse was bad the Leviathans were bad but he was just taking liberties that were way too extreme and I mean I really feel felt bad for Sam in this episode with the whole thing God, because it really gave him this hope that he could survive the trials, could achieve a normal life, you know, and he could assist Dean in hunting while having a family with Amelia. But then, you know, we, we saw that Victor was achieving Sam's aspiration in a really long way, and that kind of, you know, blew everything up in Sam's face, which was, I mean, really unfortunate guy. Sam needs some kind of hope, some kind of light at the end of the tunnel, and this Victor gave it to him, and then took it away and slammed the door in his face. And that's difficult, especially when I think his mindset's a little 
walking right now. I don't think he's going to go crazy and murderous or anything like that, but I do think he's kind of down right now, and this would have given him a good boost if what Victor was doing was all legit. However, from Dean's point of view, I think the realization that Victor's happy family of hunters wasn't what it was cracked up to be kind of lit this fire underneath his butt to be that Rudy Hobbit. I mean, I know he said he was going to do it anyway, but I think this was that extra push to be that Hobbit, to be Sam from Lord of the Rings, and get his brother Sam through the trials and close the gates of hell. Because as the best hunter out there, I think Dean realized it was his responsibility to give order, like we were talking about Nico, and also to give Sam, Kevin, Prissy, her allies, and even someone like Garth a chance at a normal life, or at least a chance to die in an old age. And Nico, is this how, I mean, you thought Sam and Dean's encounter with Victor influenced them? Or did you kind of have a different point of view? Which would be understandable as something interesting about this episode was the fact that you could look how it affected the Winchester in several different ways. Yeah, Dan, like I mentioned before, I think it will ultimately give the Winchester some ideas on how to train future hunters, but the right way. I also think Victor's model gave Sam hope that he could get out of the life as he knows it and do it differently in the future so he could change his life in the future. Much like I theorized weeks ago and just mentioned a moment ago about Sam being the new lead men of letters guy and Dean being the hunter liaison to the men of letters, I think that that's the pos- possibly where things will go. I still think that this is how the show ends with the brothers being the mentors to the next generation and setting up a repository of knowledge and maybe even an X-Men-like school for hunters. That would be pretty awesome. <laughs> Love the and- X-Men references of the episode, by the way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that Dean makes for a great potential Wolverine almost to the yes. X-Men school because he's not going to be Professor X. If anything, that'll be Sam. Right. But <laughs> he would be the Wolverine. Or, he's going to uh, say Logan. He's going to say, crap's going to get bad. God, I'm going to teach you how to deal with the bad crap. Yep. Yep. That's that's exactly what he is. Okay, that's that's pretty awesome. Because I love Wolverine as well. Yeah. That's one of my favorite characters as well. So, okay, all right. Make Dean like Wolverine. I'm all for that. Much better use of his character than anything, anything Sarah Gamble has done with the depression and the drinking and all that. Oh, this yeah, is absolutely. such a better direction. So make- much better. And we're so excited about the show now. It gets us excited. And that's what Supernatural should be. It should be something exciting and just kicks butt. Yeah. And we're on the path to doing that now. And really, that was something that really made me love this episode. As it sparked my excitement for future plot lines. As it really reopened the door for story concept I envisioned for this series that I thought was going to be eliminated. That they were done with it after you know the, the apocalypse took place. They really brought back something that I thought was going to play a huge factor in season four and five, which was that the idea that the supernatural actually exists and that information being revealed to the public and it causing panic, which Dean kind of warned Chrissy about. Originally, I mean, before the angels were brought in, the cast and all that stuff in season four, I thought this was the direction the show was going to go. But instead of word getting out on what I said was a big national media scale, I said it was just going to be revealed to like the government. Because, you know, at that point in season three and two and three, they were on the run from the FBI. So I thought how they were going to get out of it was the government seeing what was going on. And then they would end up having the Winchesters head up a secret agency to keep it contained. And at that time, I thought it was going to be like the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Development, the Hellboy movies. Although, in re-looking at this crackpot theory now, I think this agency could be the Men of Letters, which Sam and Dean, as we said, will reinstitute to close the gates of hell, as well as keep a lid on the existence of supernatural beings being exposed to the public, which I think is going to make a suitable ninth and final season plotline. Nico, do you see my theory as a possible future for Supernatural? Or, I mean, throw in some of your ideas to make it work. Because I could see that Alpha storyline that you want to see the possibility of this as well. Yeah, Dan, I do see this as a possibility. However, I think that it will still be a secret society like the original Men of right. Leathers, rather than having anything to 
do with the government. I do see why you thought that at the time when you first initially thought up the theory. I think it's better if the public is totally oblivious and the government is not involved. And yeah. rather that that same agency is just the men of letters working in the shadows and nobody is the wiser. I think that's the best way to go about it. And I think you and I are on the same page on that in this yeah. in this setting for Supernatural. Back when season three was going on, I would have 100% been behind the government being brought in on it so that they could work, you know, and not constantly be at the mercy of the FBI or any of that. So yeah, that's where I'm thinking. Well, and I think the Men of Letters is a better idea than the government thing because I think it would have turned into Buffy season four. <laughs> yeah, very much. And that did not work where they, they kind of combined military and science with the fantasy and supernatural. That just did not work. So I think the Men of Letters is a better idea better way to go about it but do you see plot lines where they may have to be forced to keep a lid on certain things to keep oh the yeah from finding out okay oh for sure because i think that's going to be a conflict next season i doubt the government or who's going to find out but i do see maybe a villain or some kind of threat of exposing it or there being a rogue hunter someone that doesn't want to go along with the metal letters that gives them a hard time sure so that's possible too again i don't think that would be the end-all be-all villain i still think it'd be a supernatural threat i want to see lucifer again i don't know if that's going to happen it might just be crowley but who knows what well, one thing I can guarantee you that will happen in the future because I'm pretty sure Chrissy got her friend are going to return to help out in a final battle against Crowley or some big event to close the gates of hell and I hope when that happens or maybe it'll even happen before that that they end up meeting Kevin because I think it will resolve a lot of the issues he's having with isolating himself and just not really taking care of himself very well at all so Nico is Kevin meeting and joining up with Chrissy's apple dumpling gang as Dean called it a possibility and then with that share with us any other final thoughts you got about the episode yeah it's definitely a possibility and Garth and maybe even some more hunters will meet up with them team up with them but definitely Kevin will you're right he needs it because he is isolated he's isolated himself to try and figure out how to to defeat these three obstacles for sam so yeah i do see kevin maybe even joining the gang after they are done with what he needs to do with translating the tablet but overall i really enjoyed this episode the plot about victor training the next generation really excited me and the heartbreaking betrayal that he was the one that killed their families was a great thing and was great storytelling this episode really got me excited for the rest of the season and really that's all i had to say about it and that's great because supernatural has not done that to get you fired up for the finale at the end of the season in a right. very long time probably two years maybe yes. maybe three so way to get your crap together guys really if if i could give out an award or they gave out a reward for or comeback TV series of the year, it would go to you. Yep. All right. So with that, we're going to move on to a show that's always rock solid this summer. That makes us incredibly excited when it's about the premiere. Every time and every episode, I swear my jaw has to roar at some point. So let's talk about the great Doctor Who episode with the very clever title, The Bells of St. John. <laughs> The doctor comes to modern-day Earth when Clara calls him through the TARDIS. They discover that someone or something is occupying the Wi-Fi networks of the world, kind of harvesting human minds. Not because of a hate or a desire for power, but because they care. It's been a long three months since the Christmas special, and I was jonesing for some Doctor Who. And this episode did not disappoint. 
Yes, sir. Doctor Who often presents the viewer with villains in the form of lizard people, soulless robots, creepy toy-like creatures, or hideous monsters. It can be somewhat childlike or horror movie-ish. Sure, but that's part of the fun of Doctor Who. But in this first episode of the second half of Series 7, showrunner Stephen Moffat instead evoked a different kind of horror, the fear of what we're giving up by being online all the time. It was a good, disturbing idea for an episode because it taps into our adult fears and not just our childlike ones. You see, there's something in the Wi-Fi. You know how when you're in a public space and check to see what Wi-Fi networks are available, you just tend to pick the one that doesn't have a lock on it? Well, this episode warned that whatever you do, don't ever try to connect to a network whose name is just gibberish symbols. Once you've clicked it, they're in your computer and can see you. And if they can see you, they might choose you. And if they choose you, you're dead. Well, Maybe not actually dead. It seemed like the hacked Wi-Fi users were in fact rendered comatose and their souls slash minds slash personalities were uploaded to the cloud. Ugh, I have a cloud there was, on my computer. <laughs> Yikes. And there was no getting out of the cloud once in it without completing shutting down the cloud and returning all the minds they had collected to their bodies. Equal parts The Ring and Black Mirror with just a pinch of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This episode, The Bells of St. John, boasted a very strong concept and nailed the very typical Whovian trope of taking something so familiar and commonplace and twisting it into a nightmarish threat. They do this so, so well. Dan, this was a really interesting concept this week that didn't quite deliver on the full-scale meltdown of an internet apocalypse, nor did it have to because it had more than enough energy, character, and really spectacle to prove a romping kickstart to the second half of season seven. So Dan, what did you think of this episode and the somethings in the internet monster? Well, what's great about this show is they take something that everybody does and throws it into the world of sci-fi in either a frightening or a cool way. This episode went with the frightening. And man, and I could see this happening to anybody. Yeah. That's the crazy part of it. Just great. And shows why the doctors needed. Why he needed to be back on TV to save us from this crazy stuff. And so this was a lot of fun. It got your heart going in the first five minutes. Yeah. Once they explained what was going on in this. Wow. I mean, whoa. And that's what's great is it's Doctor Who's out there, but it's not so far out there that we can't really connect with it. And this was just very, very clever. But the thing is, this show is great because they have ideas that are so easy because so obvious right in front of our face. Because they pull them off and they put them together in these storylines. Like he watched it and go, how come I didn't think of that? Right. That's, I mean, that's just how simple it is. Okay, clever. It's just like, you know, me writing here, I write scripts, I do things like that for writing or I, I write reviews for the show. I'm constantly looking at that internet signal, checking it, clicking it, doing stuff on that. So I'm like, oh my God. It was right there every day I write a script and I did come up with the idea. Believe it to Doctor Who, they do. So great job on that. It was really very, very clever. Yeah, and plot wise, we picked up with the Doctor's self imposed, quote, quiet time, being interrupted by an impossible incoming TARDIS call from a now 21st century bound Clara. I love this introduction with the doctor posing as a monk in the 1200s and how the other monks thought the TARDIS telephone was the bells of St. John's ringing because of the St. John's ambulance sticker on the TARDIS door. Yeah, great reference. All of this was great fun. In this week's episode, The Bells of St. John, it continued season seven's aim to deliver a blockbuster a week, but Moffat's pre-promoted pitch of the episode having a born identity vibe seemed to fall short of that promise. While the action may have failed to hit any true punch in the air moments, the plummeting plane and anti-grav motorbike definitely win points for sheer cheekiness and fun. 
and the pacing was swift enough to entertain us throughout the episode. So I'm not saying this was bad. It just didn't really have that born identity vibe that Moffat kind of promoted it as we were waiting these three months to hear it. So Dan, were you happy with the action of this week's episode? And do you agree with me that while it was action packed, it didn't quite live up to the born identity level promised by Stephen Moffat? I think that was a poor example to use to Agreed. describe this episode. It was great. I mean, it delivered what it should have delivered for a, a Doctor Who mid-season premiere. Now, if you want bigger you know what this is the mid-season premiere folks you got to do something big for the finale especially when you have something as huge as the 50th anniversary coming up you got to pull back your punches a little bit to build into something like that because doctor who it always delivers some pullback stuff but comedy shows will pull off a time machine appearing in an airplane and then diverting the airplane flight comedy shows could do that so if you're disappointed that this was not enough come on give me a break folks because it was. It just was great. It was excellent. Thrilling. I mean, the whole way through, it was a, it was a ride. It was a thrill ride. Okay, maybe it wasn't the born identity, but did it need to be the born identity? No, it's Doctor Who, and it was everything we expect. And guess, yes, maybe they could have gone bigger, got better, but this, again, it's the mid-season premiere. Just wait, folks. There's bigger stuff to come. Yeah. Of course, the most important aspect of this episode was that we were re-reintroduced to our new companion, Clara, on the phone at the home of the family she nannies for in 2013, as she struggled to access the internet. There is no doubt that this was Clara and the Doctor's show, with both Coleman and Smith showcasing even more of the comedic and romantic chemistry that's guaranteed to entertain us week in and week out. It may have been seven months since we first saw Clara, but this felt like the first episode where she received an impactful, lasting introduction. Not least because she didn't die for once. Her modern incarnation is still very much an equal to the Doctor. If not for the smarts, banter, fearlessness, and flirtation, then for the mystery at the heart of her. It's a partnership that has them both as interested in figuring out the other, and Moffat succeeded in dangling enough clues to really pique our interest. Who was the woman in the shop that gave Clara the Doctor's number? Why did her diary not have any reference to her being 23? It went from 22 directly to 24. These are all little things that that we don't know about Clara that just make us and the doctor so intrigued. Dan, are you satisfied with this re-reintroduction of Clara? And were you as surprised as my family and I were that she did not die in this episode? We were half expecting her to die a few more times before he finally saved her in the finale of this season. Did you see it going that way or as well? Or did you expect her to survive here and become the next companion in this episode? I think that this is the one they're going to go with for a while. Oh, I don't think she's going to die again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I felt that way. I felt, even when she first came in this episode, that she wasn't going to die. I felt that that was a big thing to kick off the premiere. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a big thing for the Christmas special. Yeah. But if she's going to die again and they bring another incarnation, I don't think that will happen until Series 8. Okay. Now, the thing of it is, I've got a couple questions and ideas about her. I don't think she could be from Gallifrey, right? No. Okay, because... Well, I say that really... <laughs> in, in, if, she died, if she died and came back, she'd look different. She would look different, exactly. But is it possible she's other some other kind of alien? So I feel like this is going to relate to the Doctor's origin somehow. The fact that she keeps dying and coming back reminds me of the Doctor. Not that she's Gallifrey, but could there be another race that's capable of doing that? Or could she be an evolution? Absolutely, those are possibilities. Or it could be that she's human, but the universe or the Gallifreyan god or whatever they believe in is sending her back to him because she's important for his future and for his mission and so therefore it's some supernatural force that even the doctor doesn't understand yet well yeah maybe it's some kind of resurrection because you know there's a lot of 
religions, including, you know, Christianity, that's got that belief that, you know, die and rise again. They make the Galilean free and God thing. That's an interesting thing to go with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's possible. There's I mean, there's a lot of questions about this, and it would make sense that's the beginning. Also, it may have some connection to do with the TARDIS. Yeah, I don't think they're going to go religious on us. That's a possibility for sure, but I don't think they're going to introduce a Gallifreyan God idea. Or uh, well, w- it would be something. A, what the God like, or the God of the Gallifreyans or who they. Yeah understand as god i just think they see the universe as maybe right that higher power there's a higher power out there or something like that well, I, yeah they would walk a fine line between the science and the religion yeah if they exactly did anything like that because that's just doctor who the other thing is it could have something to do with the tardis um my thought process on that was because you know with the neil gaiman episode where the tardis actually was a living human person yeah that could interact with the doctor the tardis said i help you find companions i bring them to you and he got the phone call from the tardis right and so i feel like that may have something to do with that and the other question is this woman that gave him the doctor's number who was it yeah is it river definitely a possibility and there's no way it could be amy or rory right it cannot be okay because we're in 2013 and they've already been zapped to the past okay so there's no way they could do that as an older person or anything like that because they no, died way before they died before 2012 because we see the son come to meet the grandfather their second child to come and meet brian yeah they he comes and meets brian right okay so maybe not that could be river could be another past character could be because they're i guess going to reemerge. so maybe that has something to do with that i don't know it's curious yeah but that's two things come um, neil gaiman is coming back to write so maybe that's something to do with the tardis and they're folding that episode i don't know there's a lot of angles this could go a lot of explanations and like the doctor i'm curious because i want to know why but i know we're gonna have to wait yeah i want to know why now but i don't think it's gonna happen so dan i think my favorite scene of this episode was either the scene in the coffee shop slash rooftop cafe where miss kislet hacked all the patrons and staff of the shop to talk to the doctor which was a great scene both dramatically and comically and the scene where the doctor and clara come out of the tardis in downtown london the next morning and the doctor pretends to be a magician that just made the tardis appear out of thin air to get enough money to pay for breakfast i thought those were two great scenes that made me happy this show was back on tv so dan what were your favorite scenes of the episode i really liked the scenes the doctor and clara together yeah that whole sequence with the coffee shop and that whole aspect, it was great. The chemistry they have together is outstanding. It's really, it's kind of like this fun, like romantic journey road movie when they're together. Yeah. You just, you can't get enough. It's got a real classic feel to it. Like one of those classic romantic movies, you know, for the 40s and 50s kind of vibe to it. And it's just, it's a lot of fun with them together. It just, I, the casting is brilliant. That's all I've got to say. And I just, everything together with them together was great. And again, the airplane thing, that was awesome. I mean, how many shows can pull off a sequence like that? That was nuts. And then the motorcycle off the skyscraper. I mean, these are some of the best effects on television. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, it blows my mind. I mean, these are like mini movies every week. And from where this show is gone compared to the Eccleston episodes to what it is now with Moffat. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I totally agree with Moffat's assessment that each of these episodes will be a blockbuster of the week. And this one definitely felt like that. I just think he missed the boat when he tried to promote it as that born that, identity. Yeah, there's a wrong movie to use. Yeah, it was mu- it was much better in its Doctor Who-ness. <laughs> 
you know, being more Doctor Who made it better than what I would if say, they tried you know, to be a born identity. It's a it's a blockbuster film. Yeah, just a blockbuster every week. Like Avengers kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying Avengers is the best word to use, but you know, you say, Well, it's T V show episodes on the scale of the summer popcorn movies. Exactly. Gotta get I don't really consider the born movies are great, but I don't really consider them as the biggest action sci fi epics out there. No, definitely not. Um, Doctor Who in terms of sci fi and some of that stuff's a little more epic than born even. So, you know, I think he just needs to say it's going to blow your mind every episode. Yeah. Because it does. And even first half of the season did that too. Yep. Dinosaurs on a spaceship. Come on. That was amazing. So, I mean, there you go. I'm happy it's back too. I really can't wait to see where the Doctor and Clara go. Because like, I'm like, oh, you know, I can't handle this show without Amy and Rory. And it's still amazing. Yeah. I think it's going to be fun next week. From the scenes we saw for, for the next week and upcoming episodes, they showed some really, really fun stuff. And I think it's going to be one of those kind of almost uh, crazy episodes next week that's just a lot of fun. And it's going to be a really good story next week. Unfortunately, my DVR cut off before I could see yeah. the preview. Yeah. So um, I, I'm going into it cold. So I'll be surprised. Yeah. I think you. I think we'll enjoy it. It's going to be, it's not going to be really high-minded stuff. It's going to be like crazy fun much like the pompeii episode you know when they went back to pompeii and it'll be it'll be fun like that we need a break from the heavy duty stuff every once in a while with doctor who yeah it's gonna be a light and fun episode next week not that this one wasn't fun this one was crazy fun just very action-packed as well i'm satisfied with whatever they do (laughs) yeah all right with that i think it's about time to jump into the rundown section Sci-Fi's home for Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. EMT. We know trauma. And to yes. do that, we're going to jump into Sunday night, as usual, with the Family Guy episode, 12 and a Half Angry Men. The mayor is put on trial for murder, and the jury must decide if he's guilty or not. This week's Family Guy was actually a fairly decent spoof on the classic Henry Fonda film directed by Sidney Lumet, 12 Angry Men. This episode is modeled after the general plot. One person gradually convinces 11 peers to change their minds about a case that appears simple but turns out to be far more complicated. The lone holdout this time is Brian, who has to convince the rest of the jurors, eager to convict and go home, to actually analyze the testimony and evidence. Twelve and a Half Angry Men goes through the motions of a Twelve Angry Men homage, but isn't concerned with doing anything other than repeating the form, indulging in a fair amount of typical bizarre Adam West humor, and throwing in a bunch of endurance humor. The framework is built well enough to sustain the episode, and about half of the cutaways land with laughs, punctuating almost every moment with an outburst from Peter. But this is an increasingly rare instance when Peter's nonstop annex yield just as many laughs as groans. Ultimately, not a bad episode, just not the best. And with such great source material, it could have been so much better. But it was fun and enjoyable to watch Family Guy do such an iconic film. They just didn't pull it off as well as they did when they did Star Wars. That's all for this week. But with that, we're going to move on to The Walking Dead, which is always a great episode. And this week, we're going to talk about the penultimate episode, This Sorrowful Life. Rick and the group are forced to make a huge sacrifice in order to sustain a truce with the governor. On the heels of a new and improved Michonne three weeks back, The Walking Dead delivered another nice bit of character redemption this week. 
Of course, this one was redemption by way of sacrifice, as Merle faced who he was and what he'd done and decided he'd do all he could to stop the governor, no matter the cost. This week really was a redemption for Merle, but since he was unable to kill the governor, we learned just what an ass the governor can be when he killed Merle by shooting him in the heart, ensuring he'd come back to be what he hated most, a walker. I will say that it's really difficult to reconcile the Merle here with the one we met in season one. Heck, he didn't say a single racist thing while traveling with Michonne. It even seems a bit questionable to learn he hadn't killed anyone until he met the governor, given he was a drug-abusing, gun-blasting maniac when we met him in season one, who was already knee-deep in the zombie apocalypse. But given how over-the-top Merle 1.0 was, I'll take this much more nuanced portrayal, especially when it was in the midst of such a strong episode this week. It was actually a really interesting and appreciated choice to have the governor's offer to give up Michonne in exchange for peace lead to an even bigger moment of truth for Merle than for Rick. The idea that Merle was a weapon Rick aimed and then could not turn off added tension to the first portion of the episode as he took off with Michonne. The fact that Merle was absolutely right that Rick would back down from the plan and didn't wait for that to happen was another nice touch. Michael Rooker did terrific work in this episode, showing everything going on with Merle. From his desperate search for drugs, to his cold but true observations, to his ultimate change of heart. And Merle and Michonne were great together, as they took their fateful trip. This was the most screen time Michonne has had since Clear, and it was a relief to see her newfound depiction as much more talkative character, and how that continued in this episode. Complete with some appreciated touches of humor, like when she smirked and told Merle, I wanted my sword back before I got away. When he asked why she hadn't run yet. Their interactions had to sell Merle finally changing his mind and letting her go, and within the context of this episode, it definitely did. The penultimate episode of a TV season is almost always used to set the table for the finale, especially on a series like this one, and especially in a season constructed like this one. I get the feeling, however, that we probably could have leapfrogged this sorrowful life and condensed it to a couple scenes in the finale. But ultimately, this was a great enough episode to warrant the extra screen time. In fact, without this extra screen time, we would not have gotten Merle's last stand, which was another terrific sequence. The slow reveal of what his plan was played perfectly, as it first looked like he was being suicidal drawing all those zombies near his car, until we realized he was luring them all toward the governor's men, and using the gunfire of those men fighting off those zombies to mask his own gunfire taking them out was ingenious. This mixture of man versus zombie versus man was really one of the best we've seen on this show. Obviously, Merle's story dominated this week, but there was a couple of other good plot lines at the prison as well. While it was overshadowed by how it affected Merle, Rick did indeed reach his own line in the sand with the Michonne scenario. It's not clear if him seeing Lori again was the final time, though it did trigger him realizing he couldn't go through with the governor's offer. And him telling the group the, quote, Rick dictatorship was over is obviously another turning point for the group. I also have to note that Rick's big, rousing, and rather uplifting speech to the group, we are the greater good, we are the reason we're still here, not me, was excellent. All in all, an excellent episode that set us up for the finale next week, and yet was great in its own right. Can't wait for next week's finale. 
Like I said, another good episode to set up the finale next week. And with that, we're going to move to Monday night with a show that we all love on this podcast. And we talk about Wu sends in a voicemail every week about. And then we inevitably have long discussions off air about this show. It's just one of those shows that have captured our imagination. And that's How I Met Your Mother with this week's great episode, The Time Travelers. Ted and Barney's future versions attempt to persuade present-day Ted to go see Robots vs. Wrestlers. Marshall and Robin have a dance-off. So did anyone else think this week's How I Met Your Mother was going a little too sci-fi by introducing a time traveler element sort of this late in the series? Because that's what it seemed like as Ted and Barney were confronted with not only 20 years from now versions of themselves, but also 20 hours from now Ted and 20 minutes from now Barney. All of which were fully interactive with present day Ted and Barney. Don't get me wrong, this was this was a brilliant idea. It just was like, are you going a little too sci-fi? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> this episode was easily one of the most bizarre and out there episodes of How I Met Your Mother yet, but it was almost so crazy and ridiculous that it actually came around to being a grounded storyline, yeah. particularly for Ted. For the last couple episodes, it's been a strange dynamic where Ted is kind of the odd man out in the group. It's clear that his loneliness is really starting to take a toll. To be fair, you can't feel too bad for the guy knowing that he's about to meet the love of his life in just 45 days which was a reveal in this episode even so it was nice to see this subject directly addressed again in a very unique way that i really enjoyed but it, like i said it was out there for a yeah. for a non-science fiction show this episode also had some very funny moments although it's hard not to when you have three versions of one guy trying to talk over three versions of another guy for the longest time <laughs> as baffled as I was throughout most of the episode, I couldn't help but chuckle at as each time traveler made their case for Ted to go or not to go to robots versus wrestlers. Legends. Moments like Robin's Zuckerberging Marshall, Marshall hiding in the ladies' room stall, and Carl the bartender's outrage at Marshall not knowing his last name were all great. That's not to mention Robin's line and potential catchphrase. And you know why? Because I'm Sparkles, bitch. I think I also just liked the fact that pretty much the entire episode took place at McLaren's. That was fun. I like that. Yeah. Of course, the real standout scene from this week's episode was Ted's non-existent monologue to the mother. In any other episode, this might have not worked, but considering the events leading up to it, I think it fit quite nicely into this episode. The big reveal showing Ted completely alone at the bar was actually one of the stronger moments leading up to this, and I especially was touched by Bob Saget's oh, yeah. narration this week as he described what he would have done that night if he could go back in time. This makes me think that the reason that Ted is telling the kids about how he met their mother is because she has passed away in the future and he is remembering the good times leading up to the meeting of the love of his life that he has now lost it's just a thought or theory but that seems to be the heartbreaking conclusion i came to at the end of this episode Jeez. you part want me, ted to have a heartbreaking conclusion man <laughs> part what of me actually this? thought there was a chance that how i met your mother was going to reveal the identity of the mother right then that the camera would spin away oh from ted's God. distraught face and show us the woman we've been waiting eight seasons to meet had the showrunner snuck a major casting choice by us but before ted's fantasy was able to go any further lewis the mother's current boyfriend showed up 
up and punched Ted in the face. So, Dan, what do you think of this episode? And do you have any thoughts on my theory about the mother's death? The episode first, real quick. <laughs> then I'm going to kind of rant a second. The episode first, very clever. I love the singing at the end. Yes. Where they all sang together, the future versions. That was outstanding. So that, that was fun. That made it worth it for that. Okay, guys, I've been waiting 20 years for this, just like we practiced. No mistakes. Ready? One, two, a one, two, three, four. Whoa, for the longest time. Whoa, for the longest time. If you said goodbye to me tonight, there would still be music left to write. What else could I do? I'm so inspired by you. That hasn't happened for the longest time. The reveal, that was one of the most depressing moments I think this show has had. Oh my gosh. I mean, it was. That was one of the most emotionally deep scenes I think the show's had. It was just so depressing. And I, for a while, didn't even know what was going on because I was so overstruck with emotions. Because I and really what it was, I just didn't realize when the monologue took place. I was like, "What is this taking place?" You know, I was like, "Is this the future, the past, or what's going on here?" And that's just how overcome with emotions I was. But now this is a typical thing done in movies. I look at How I Met Your Mother. It's structured as basically a giant romantic comedy movie. That's basically what How I Met Your Mother is. And each episode is like a scene or like a moment in the film. And normally every film reaches a point where the character gets their most depressing point. It's their darkest point. And it happens just before the conclusion or the end. And we're about there right now, folks. And so I think the reason why it got this dark is we are at this part of the film called The Dark Night of the Soul, just before things are about to look up for Ted. So I think that's why the depression's there. They're trying to capture that feeling at that moment because they did a great job and Bob Saget helped out. As for this idea about the mother's death, I think that needs a win. Yeah. I mean, I, I go back to Robin's speech she gave just before he was about to marry Stella because she left him at the altar. And she says, you're Ted Mosby. This has got to be an epic adventure. It's got to be something big and huge. And for him to lose, I feel like her to die, then he lost. Unless it's explained in a way how he won. Or they twist it. Or it's it's the other characters being there. Marshall and Barney and Robin that help him get through it. Well, my thought is that they lived for 20 22 years or 25 years or whatever it ends up being the time that they lived together for that long. They had their two kids and then she got sick and died. And that's why he started telling these kids, did I ever tell you how I met your mother? And so like, that's my idea. Because otherwise he's been telling this story for, you know, in the idea is that he's been telling this for a couple hours. And why hasn't she come in and been like, why are you boring the kids with that story? No, you know, so like my idea is that they're still captivated or still listening to it because they've just lost their mother and it's a way to remember her or to learn about her. And that, you know, that makes it uplifting in the end it's not it's not depressing because she she died it's uplifting because they're remembering or they're learning about their mother and learning about their father at the same time and so i don't know it's just a thought i had we we just need to know he's not alone at the end if that happens you know she gave him something well he's got two kids 
he's got well, he's got the kids. And and I and I want to I want something in there though. If it does go to the future, that we know the family he had on the show is still there for him through this as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know that because he refers to everybody right. as uncle and aunt and cousins. And, and and I think that they need to say that we the end of it or the end of the line. He goes, "This is rough, but we need to get through this together as family." Yeah. And then mm-hmm. it ends with Barney going. And it's going to be legendary. Yes. Fade to black. And that's what the end of this show needs to be, actually, folks. It needs to be legend, wait for it, dairy. Because that's just how it's been. It's been an epic ride. It needs to be big and epic. And I think this Lewis character might be someone they have to fight. You know, Ted Mosby is going to have to fight to get the mother, I have a feeling. And it's going to go down the wire, folks. Because the show's called How I Met Your Mother. It's not how I married or how I got engaged to your mother. So he could meet the mother. And then the plot line of season nine is Kim fighting to get her to be with him because wouldn't you think that's the epic story the end of it is like how they got together and then that's the the lead into your theory about the end it's possible i actually think that she is going to be single when they meet i like that or on the way out with lewis so i don't think it's going to be ted has to win her away i think it's going to be more that they meet and he might be the reason she i just feel like he needs a challenge to get over next season okay for them to get together or something to face. I mean, because it just, it seems too easy right now. And I think it needs to be a lot more challenging and more epic. Because we've been on this adventure, and I call it an adventure for eight seasons. There needs to be, you know, big. It's the final season. Raise the stakes. Make it big. Make it epic. Make it yeah. legendary and go with that. So that's my thought on it here. You know, I just, if it ends the way you want it to end, I just want to make sure that they remember there's still a sitcom and that there needs to be light, fun aspects in it. You know, it's got to be somewhat positive in the end yeah and i'm not saying that that's the way i want it to end i just think that is the way it's going to well it's better than it all being a dream yeah with that it's about time for andy to rejoin us for our discussion on this week's the following episode guilt Brian set out to rescue Claire when Carol le- learned where his ex-wife is being kept in protective custody. Meanwhile, Emma and Jacob are reunited and Ryan turns an old friend for help. The episode itself actually moved quite well this week, and the FBI, for the first time in a while, seemed to be on their game. Even McDonovan said of Hardy, he's being smart, when Ryan ditched the GPS and took Claire off on his own. A few episodes back, he would have thrown a fit. The standoff at the end with Ryan and Tyson trying to protect Claire from Roderick and the Militia Boys went down a little clumsily, but still it was alright. There was way too much standing in front of windows and or standing unprotected out on the porch where anyone could shoot you for the situation to really truly feel tense. I don't know, it just wasn't perfect, but still it worked okay. This scene did a good job of bringing Ryan and Claire closer together than they've ever been this season. Of course, on this series, a step forward also comes with a few steps backward, as it was a bit easy to predict that Claire was going to wind up getting caught. She just professed her love for Mr. Death Curse Ryan, to which he responded, that's a really bad idea, and supposedly competent Roderick had just received a bit of a paternal scolding from Joe about his recent failures, so it could only end with Roderick finding success in capturing Claire. I didn't really see Claire turning herself in again, and in fact, I wish it had gone down a little bit differently since she'd already had an epic, quote, turn myself over to Joe moment back in the episode The Siege. 
Andy, were you content with the pacing or movement of this episode, especially with the FBI being a little more on their game, minus the stupidity of the marshals protecting Claire? Also, were you surprised that Claire gave herself up again in this episode? Well, I want to say I was surprised, but the thing is, like, Claire is, you know, I don't want to call her a stupid woman or anything like that, but, you know, come on, Claire. Like, I was, like, for real, like, you know, like, I was kind of seeing seeing it coming, but I didn't thinking it was going to happen in this episode. I was actually thinking it was going to happen somewhere towards, you know, maybe episode 14 or 15 that it's going to air in a few weeks. But no, I wasn't really surprised, but I was only surprised that it happened in this episode. I liked the pacing in this episode. I liked that the FBI seemed a little bit more, you know, focused and, you know, more control and so on. I was actually okay with Donovan for, for once because I've been bugging, he's been bugging me for a lot, you know, since he showed up and, you know, because he underestimates how, you know, valuable Ryan is to this, uh, this operation. Yeah, that's what I felt. Okay. Now, last week we talked about how I was sort of happy to see the psychopathy scratching just beneath Jacob's pretty bored demeanor, trying to find a way out once he finally killed someone. And it looks like the person who's going to get the brunt of it is Emma. I wouldn't say that anyone deserves being brutally slaughtered, but she's certainly been tempting fate. She left her boyfriend to die in the house, then left him to die again after the whole thing was over, then got back to the compound and promptly forgot about her lover so she could go all nakedy with the fearless later Joe. Then after Jacob returns, he finds her drawing Carol on the sketch bed, though he's not privy to what she's actually drawing or what's actually on that page. It's still... A little bit silly. It might be natural for a woman as obsessed as Emma is and as prone to compartmentalizing as she's wont to do to separate the crazed mania she feels for Carol from the romantic love she feels for Jacob. Or is she just playing him because he might be a future threat? It's hard to tell. And essentially, it's a moot point. Whether or not she's trying to play him in order to keep him at bay or if she's honestly in love, Jacob is pretty ready to kill her. And suddenly you realize that living in a house full of people dreaming of murder may not be the safest place on earth, especially for Emma now. (laughs) So, Andy, what do you think of this change in the Emma-Jacob relationship? Where do you see it going from here? That's a tough question. The only thing I see happening is that both of them will not survive the season. Only one will, I think. And it could be, you know, I think Emma's got a bit soft for the past couple of episodes. She is not the crazy, you know, you know, crazy, crazy person that we've seen, you know, at the beginning of the series. Because now she's a little more, you know, I think she's a bit shaken up, I think, to be honest. I don't know what's going on, but she's, you know, she's off her game than usual. So, and Jacob, I think it's like Jacob is now becoming the craziness that Emma was. And now Emma is starting to become a little bit more like how Jacob was it in the beginning of the series but to be honest i have no idea you know with these kind of people they can you know they can one day they can be in love with each other and just have crazy states throughout the whole week then the other week they could be like slapping in the faces you know stabbing each other in the back or whatever you know anything could happen you know so i don't know but i I think that one of them will definitely die by the end of the season but i feel i don't know I, i like that jacob is now stepping out of his shell and becoming so much more creepier because he's been fascinating since uh day one for me yeah i agree i'm not sure where it's gonna go either but i do agree with you that one of them will not make it through the end of the season Dexter's David Zahas had a nice little guest spot here as an off-the-grid old FBI buddy of Ryan's named Tyson, who Ryan could turn to in order to hide Claire. I liked this actor and felt that them not killing him at the end will give Hardy another ally as the series goes forward. I also enjoyed the Joe Carroll School for Psychopaths recruiting video. 
It was possibly my favorite part of the entire episode. A guy in a poem asks, sits on a stool and asks for your name and email and promises someone will get back to you. Like you're signing up for an email newsletter. Like you're on a wait list for a new mailbox app for the iPhone. I know the murder house isn't terribly discerning, but all you need to do to apply is have an email address. That was kind of awesome in just how crazy it was. <laughs> By the end of the episode, the FBI had discovered Joe's secret, the creepy recruiting website, and it was revealed that Molly, the girlfriend Ryan got close to in 2009, was revealed as a friend slash follower of Joe. Was she a follower the whole time she was seeing Ryan? Was she assigned to him the way that Charlie was assigned to Claire? Or did Joe pluck her afterwards after Ryan broke her heart? Andy, what do you think about this Molly character? Also, did you enjoy the randomness of that recruiting video as much as I did? And maybe any other final thoughts that I hadn't touched on? The Molly character, uh, I need to see more of. I felt it wasn't enough. Uh, but, you know, it's definitely, you know, because interesting to see how many people in Ryan's life uh, has perhaps previously been allies or acquaintances of him now turn over to Joe's side because that maybe makes Ryan's life a bit more dangerous because he, you know, it's a risk than when he, whenever he turns to somebody that is not part of the FBI or something like that. At one point, actually, for the Tyson would have perhaps been part of it because, you know, the hero can never have allies, you know. I'm kidding. No, but like, seriously, I actually thought he was. But I love this actor. I love the Tyson character. I'm so glad, just like you, that he was not killed up in the end. Which, yeah. you know, make, makes me glad because, yeah, he needs another ally that is not just the FBI or Western or whatever and so on. Uh, so I like that. He was, he was so positive on Ryan and they made it up for a little bit more fun and more, more moment in the, in the series. Other than that, the recruiting thing was... You know, at this point, you know, I would call this, I would not call this episode uh, for the title that he had. I would actually call this episode for, you know, something, you know, like the, you know, creepy following, whatever, because this was, you know, they're starting get, getting more and more creepier than we have se previously seen. And I like that because I was, after the pilot, I was complaining a little bit that, you know, oh, it's been less, you know, violent disturbing images or whatever and I'm now they're really stepping it up so and it actually makes me think you know what if the FBI will try to play in you know try to get recruited and play from the inside the enemy's operation base you know in order to get Joey out and so on yeah you know I also too thought that Tyson could be maybe not a hundred percent but as we we saw him become and we saw him in the flashbacks talking up Ryan, talking about how much he loved Ryan and how much Ryan loved Claire. I knew that he was not going to turn and end up being one of the bad guys. But initially when we, they show up, I'm like, oh, can you trust him? Can you trust him? And then we realize, yeah. yes, this is one of the few people in the world that Ryan can trust. His sister, this guy, maybe nobody else in the world. These are the two people that he can trust. Maybe Claire. I mean, Claire too. Yeah. So those three people are the people that he can trust in this world. Yeah. But overall, really good episode. They're really, you know, building it up for the season finale, which, you know, I think both me, Nico and I at this point still are confused or, you know, totally unaware what's going to happen because anything could happen. But I like that they're building it up so well, even though keeping it a mystery. Yeah, totally agree. That's about all the time we have this week for the following. Yet another fun episode that keeps the show moving forward, as Andy was saying, and the fun we're having after deciding not to get too bogged down in the ridiculousness of the show is really making the show a lot more fun to review and to, to watch. I mean, I was always enjoying it watching it, but to review, I'm really enjoying it more now that we don't have to worry about it being grounded in reality and talking about, oh, that would never happen in real life. You know, when we don't have to do that, it makes it so much more fun to talk about and i hope it just yeah. keeps getting better as we keep going so once again 
Great episode. Great season. I'm loving it. Same here. Okay, thanks, Andy, for joining us once again. Now it's time to return to Revolution with the mid-season return after four months entitled The Stand. Miles leads the gang out of Philadelphia to escape the attack helicopters, which are patrolling the area. Miles and Nora become closer, and Rachel tries to ease her guilt by supplying power to the rebels. It's been one day shy of four full calendar months since we last checked in on the adventures of Charlie Matheson, humanity's pouty-lipped last chance for survival. Love, hate, or really hate revolution, you have to admit that you were kind of excited about its return, in the same way you might be excited to see how your drunk uncle ruins Christmas this this year i know i was excited about it oh boy you're on fire now let's not forget revolution actually ended 2012 on a slightly better than decent note with the mid-season finale nobody's fault but mine some idiotic reviewer even said that nobody's fault but mine very well may have possibly been the best episode of revolution so far and i'm going to have to agree with late november 2012 me David Lyons gave the finest performance of this show so far as a distraught Sebastian Monroe who missed his old pal Miles. Rachel went crazy and murdered a torturer who never actually tortured anyone, just one episode after she went crazy and murdered a scientist who she backstabbed. Miles did everyone a favor and called Charlie an idiot. Rachel's amulet amplifier allowed Bass to launch a helicopter that was about to shoot everyone before the show went black and went on hiatus for four months. And most importantly, after 10 episodes we finally found danny but we still don't know if they crossed the river <laughs> somehow they got across that river right so of course revolution's logic was to immediately kill danny in the next episode after all this time, after all the hallucinatory tunnels and evil dogs and child soldiers we encountered on the hunt for this floppy-haired idiot, Danny was reduced to a MacGuffin. And once found, his importance as a motivating plot device was complete. So Revolution killed him off in what I actually think was a brilliant move. Yeah. Get rid of the terrible character and give Charlie and Rachel something to fight for and a reason to join the Rebels. Series creator Eric Kripke addressed that concern, saying that I think... Killing Danny is exactly the right type of shocking development that really ramps everybody up emotionally for their mission in the second half of the season. It really emotionally escalates everything. But at the same time, the brilliance of this move is also typical revolution logic. The whole motivation excuse is slightly BS because wasn't Charlie already motivated enough to stop Sebastian because, oh, I don't know, his men killed her dad? Maybe the fact that Sebastian held her mom prisoner was also enough to get Charlie inspired? What about the standard, Sebastian is a mad time? tyrant who is looking to take over the world by slaughtering the last of the innocent americans he just tried to kill you and all your friends is that not enough of motivation already they got to kill your brother to be like we're gonna actually fight this guy <laughs> but that's revolution for you and bizarre turns of events are part of the reason it's a fascinating and perplexing show to watch. They killed Danny because they just decided that now would be a good time for someone to die because who knows why. The series did something similar with its last big death when it killed off Maggie in the fourth episode after spending a big part of the episode showing us her backstory and actually giving us a reason to like her. Yeah. 
About as much time was spent establishing Nora's fear of aquatic reptiles as was spent setting up Maggie's death in that episode. It's like the show decided to kill people off and they can't wait to push them out the door instead of doing the logical thing and making their deaths part of a larger story arc to really rip our hearts out. Rather, they just kill them and you never talk about them again. That's not to say this episode was awful. In fact, it was pretty okay. For revolution, I mean. The stand was no side quest and moved things along pretty well, continuing the events of Nobody's Fall but mine instead of wasting time on some silly standalone episode or standalone story. This is when Revolution is technically at its best, when it's pushing things along in a serialized format, though the accidental humor of the standalone (laughs) stories is what I really look forward to the most. But that doesn't mean there isn't room for the series' trademark lazy storytelling. So Dan, what did you think of this return of Revolution? It's funny about this show because we almost watch it because it's funny how it's laid out yeah like we watch it because it's bad i don't know if it's bad but because it's just over the top you know it's just we're amused by this which is interesting but i do think steps were made to make the show a lot better i agree with you i think danny getting killed was an outstanding idea because it darkened the charlie character and that's what needed to be done did you notice how she had talked a lot less of this episode yeah i mean she was you know very the strong silent type less crying i think they killed danny to improve that character also i think the idea of going and saving him, it was kind of a stupid plot line anyway. Yeah, very much so. And I feel like you'd have to go and save him over and over again if it kept going. And really, honestly, it, how it ended for him, he did the most awesome thing out of anybody so far. Yeah. Like, Charlie didn't do any of that stuff. You know, she didn't know enough to run over there and shoot the helicopter. And she's been on this whole adventure and getting trained by Miles and all this stuff. Can I leave it to the brother who's captured the whole first half of the season to blow up the helicopter? Can know how to do that. I mean, so that was cool. I mean, it pushed it forward and it made his death, I think, worthwhile, even though they just saved him the episode before. So there's that. Also, I love the idea that there's weapons now being able to be used in this show instead of going away from the sword fighting and all that goofiness. Because I think it's going to make it more like Falling Skies. Okay. And dealing with threats and things like that, where it's going to be this, you know, ragtag group using guerrilla warfare to fight off Monroe's militia. And I, I think that's much more interesting. That's where I think it's going to go. I mean, Falling Skies, they do the same thing as Aliens, but I think that's where Revolution's going to go now. And that deletes the side quest stuff. So I think that they're going to stay with this group that they're helping now and help them fight the militia. Because a lot of the actors that they were showing are that are part of the resistance are recognizable faces. Yeah. Because there's been a lot of other stuff. So I think what they're building up for is, you know, having the thing like the, the second mass on Falling Skies and rolling with that instead of doing the side quest stuff. But along the way, I think there'll be episodes where Miles and Elizabeth Mitchell's character will go off from the group and do their thing. And then I guess Randall and Bass are going to combine forces. So that solves that. That's how you can keep him in the story. Instead of having like three factions all working against each other. So that's interesting. Yeah, it is going to be interesting. So I, I think they've made some right decisions. And hopefully it'll get better because I do like Eric Kripke. I am rooting for him, but still there is some ridiculousness left in this show. But maybe they'll iron it out. We'll see. Okay. Well, with that, I think it's about time we jump into the Bones episode this week entitled The Blood from the Stones. Booth and Brennan look into the death of an undercover cop after his body is found with diamonds inside his body. Their investigation must determine whether the man's time undercover turned him or the ATM thieves he had infiltrated set him up. Back at the lab, Brennan is volunteered for a documentary of the Jeffersonian made for fundraising. First, though, she must find a way to be likable on film. With this week's Bones, I like that this episode guest starred comedian Dave Thomas, a.k.a. Mr. F for you Arrested Development fans, as a documentary filmmaker who I 
felt added almost a castle-like aspect to the team of the Jeffersonian. Using research he had done for his film as a means of providing helpful insight on the case. In addition, the romance that Dave Thomas's character shared with Caroline was quite amusing, as I've always been a big fan of her no-nonsense personality, and this was a fun, fresh direction to take it, adding some lightness to a heavy-duty, violent, and emotional weighing episode for the character of Celie Booth. On that note, the girl jewel thief that was a murder suspect having her foot blown off by a shotgun and still being alive afterwards was probably one of the most graphically disturbing things they've done in the history of this show, but it did do well in giving us a classic performance from David Boreanaz as Celie Booth, where he had to confront law enforcement officials who did not share his sense of honor. And I thought Bones' character was used very well in supporting Booth in this test of his resolve, even though things kind of got borderline ridiculous, which he tried to find a way to be likable on film. So with that, Nico, what was your thoughts on this excellent episode of Bones? If Bones sticks to just telling the stories and tries to stay away from all the campy crap that they throw into the episodes, you'll get a good episode of Bones. I actually disagree with you a little bit, Dan, on the Caroline thing. I thought that was some of the campy crap, but okay. you you enjoyed it. I like I, Dave Thomas. He's funny to me. Yeah. So that's kind of why I rolled with it. Understandably. I just thought it got annoying. So I was really into this story. I liked the idea that it was Celie having to deal with the possibility of cops being corrupt and what that does for his own personal morals and, and how he felt about a friend of his from the D.C. Metro police being possibly corrupt. And so that was really where this episode was good, where it was really on the ball. I thought the actual investigations in the lab were interesting the documentary was okay it got a little bit ridiculous at some points but it was okay the whole brennan trying to be likable on film a couple seasons ago i think it would have been good because it would have shown her trying to change her you know and change and be that that character that but we've seen her already do that we yeah. we don't need to continually see her trying to be more relatable every week we already understand that she's gone through a, a major transformation and it's not that she's still hyper rational but she still she does now have emotions so that was something that kind of threw me off in this yeah. episode ultimately i'd say it was a pretty good episode of bones some of the things caught me off guard and maybe frustrated me a little bit more than you but ultimately i'd, I'd give it as a win especially for what we've seen in the last 100 episodes yes now with that we're going to move on to talking about the new girl episode titled chicago hey girl what you doing After a death occurs in Nick's family, the gang travel with him to Chicago, where they help with funeral plans to meet his family. Walt Miller, we hardly knew you. Just a few episodes after a father's love, it was time to say goodbye to Nick's dad as the gang took a trip to the Windy City for his funeral. While this episode was dealing with the pretty heavy subject matter, the cold open set the tone for what would become a surprisingly light-hearted episode. Helium balloon voices are nothing new to the realm of televised comedy, but never has it been employed so effectively as when Jess, Schmidt, and Winston were forced to offer their condolences to Nick in silly munchkin voices. From there, we were introduced to the rest of Nick's crazy family, including his mother, Bonnie, played by Justified and the Americans' Margot Martindale, his younger brother, Jamie, played by Nick Kroll, and his Boston cousin, Bobby, played by comedian Bill Burr. 
This was such great casting that you just couldn't help but believe these people were related to Nick Miller. It was clear from the moment we met the Miller family matriarch that she is definitely the parent Nick takes after most, what with the odd quirks, the short temper, and the habitual avoidance of uncomfortable situations. As soon as the prodigal son stepped through the front door of the Miller's perfectly normal-looking suburban house, Mom let him know that he would be planning dearly departed Dad's Elvis-themed funeral. That was great. I enjoyed Nick's storyline with Jess here, and with him assigning her the monumental responsibility of preparing the eulogy. Just say a bunch of nice stuff all in a row. It seemed appropriate that under pressure, Nick would succumb to his old habits of drinking and avoiding a direct confrontation of his feelings. This certainly fit his character and led to some great comedy with the drunk Elvis that passed out before the funeral and ultimately Jess's Elvis routine, which was better in the post-episode cutscenes. Schmidt's fear of death was a nice counterbalance to Nick's storyline. I liked Winston's mock corpse routine and Schmidt's failed attempt to deliver a speech to him. However, I think this dilemma really hit its stride when Cousin Bobby attempted to retrieve the gold chain from Walt's corpse, prompting Schmidt to wrestle Bobby away and stick his head in and out of the casket. Really, too much great stuff to name it all. Once again, a great episode of what I think is the funniest show on television. Yeah, like I said, a pretty funny episode. The Jess as Elvis was great. I really love that part. And really, just a fun time this week as New Girl went to our hometown, Chicago. Yes. Now we're going to move on to Justified as we talk about the great penultimate episode that really set us up for a good finale with the episode Peace of Mind. See them Much to the frustration of the Rayland and the sheriff's office, Drew continues to keep quiet until Ellen May is in custody. With Ellen May temporarily under Limehouse's protection, could Boyd gunning for her, capturing her could be tricky. After last week's barn burner and ahead of next week's season finale, peace of mind downshifted a bit to let recent developments breathe and move a few game pieces into place. With Drew Thompson safely and hidden away in the clutches of federal law enforcement, the next target in the great Harlan County scavenger hunt of 2013 was Ellie May. Drew had made her safety a condition of his cooperation, thus the cops needed to find her so he would play ball, and the criminals needed to find her so he wouldn't. So where the marshals should have been celebrating a victory lap, and where Raylan should have been enjoying a hard-earned suspension, they instead ventured once more into the Harlan breach. Raylan was particularly insistent that he be allowed to tie up this last loose end before being relieved of duty, since what's waiting for him back in civilian life is an estranged ex-wife and their unborn child, domestic concerns that leave him completely out of his debt. Yet, it's a testament to the way Justified has honed its use of supporting characters this season that neither Raylan nor Boyd was involved in the best stretch of this episode, when all the parties in search of Ellie May converged. She had sought sanctuary and salvation at the erstwhile church of preacher billy and the sequence of events that unfolded there distilled many of the show's chief strengths into one long deliberate paced act the focus and the source of tension shifted repeatedly without feeling abrupt and brought a measure of closure to several characters Unfortunately, that closure for one of the characters was death. I couldn't believe they killed Colt off this episode rather than next week in the finale, just when he was starting to be one of the better parts of the show and Marshall Tim takes him out. What made this episode so great was the scene in the church near the end, and it was the choices people made that put Ava, Ellie Mae, and Cassie in this situation. 
and all three of them have long been, to differing extents, more the objects of other people's choices than masters of their own volition. Boyd and Ava sent Ellie May on the run, Shelby took her in, then delivered her to Limehouse. Limehouse succumbed to a pang of mercy, leaving her free but adrift. Cassie was only in Harlan to receive Ellie May's confession because she was carrying out her brother's legacy. He was the true believer, she admitted. Ava, too, has often followed in the wake of a more determined will, her actions guided by her total faith in Boyd. But there in the church, all three had the chance to do, as Ava emphasized, what was right in their hearts, fully aware of the consequences. Ellie Mae, whose finding naivety had curled into a weary fatalism after so many betrayals and manipulations, at last unburdened her soul. Cassie, whose role in Billy's evangelizing had been at least partially cynical, stood strong with a lost girl who had nowhere else to go. And for all her criminal activity and adjacency to criminal activity, for all the damage her former charge could do to her, Ava was unwilling to become a cold-blooded killer. Hence Colt's presence as the backup plan, because Ellie Mae still posed a threat to both Boyd and the Detroit mob. Narratively speaking, Ellie Mae was expendable enough to be in very real danger throughout the episode, so the stakes never faltered even as the center of gravity shifted. With Ava holding the gun, the tension stemmed from an internal character-based source, with Limehouse's rueful warning still ringing in her ears how much of a villain would she let herself be. When Colt arrived, the crux of the danger became an external plot-oriented one. He would kill her without breaking a sweat unless something intervened. Intervention arrived in the form of Tim, and the locus of the tension seemed shifted once more as these two by now old foes squared off for a final time. Inverting their rapid fire battle of wits in decoy, this was a duel of pure nerve. But once the name of Tim's murdered buddy was invoked, the outcome was all but sealed. Tim, with retribution as much as justice behind his eyes, was determined to squeeze the trigger at the slightest provocation. Colt, whose assessment that most of Mark died somewhere in Kandahar, carried a whiff of projection, was determined to provoke Tim. Peace of Mind trusted its crescendo to a mostly verbal set piece among two of the show's less developed regulars and three recurring characters. That's a daunting feat for any series to pull off, especially in a season's penultimate episode, but I think it did it very well. As a result, Ellie May enjoyed a warm, if brief, reunion with her father figure, Drew, chaperoned by Raylan. With Drew's deal on track at long last, the marshal can turn his attention to his personal life. But so too can Detroit, as Nikki's man Picker infiltrated Winota's home in perhaps TV history's most nerve-wracking cliffhanger based around a rocking chair. The object of Theo Tonin's revenge appears to have shifted. After this week's wary meditative installment, the finale looks set to once again ratchet up the threat level. But what a loaded ending that was. Man. This was the best scene of the episode. You knew going in they wouldn't be showing something like this unless there was another step in the process. Tonin is ruthless. The entire scene, you were left waiting for some kind of explosion, and even expecting it when she sat down. That was a hell of a twist, and we viewers were left to cover our face and peek through the openings between our fingers, and then nothing happened. It was so awesome. What a way to set up the finale for next week. I just can't wait. Once again, great episode of Justified. Really looking forward to next week's finale, and it's going to be really, really good. Especially with the news that Season 5 has been officially renewed and confirmed in the News with Nico section. Yes. Now we're going to move on for Thursday's show with the coverage of Glee. This week will be a little different since there are no new episodes of Glee, but the guys decided to have an overview review of the show thus far. 
Hi everyone and welcome to the New Direction section. Thank you Nico and Dan for that fine introduction. My name is Wu Eskam and with me is my partner Andy Papak. And while Glee is on hiatus, we're going to talk about the two main storylines that are going on in Glee Season 4 right now. First of all, this week we're going to cover the Lima storyline and next week we're going to cover the New York storyline. I would have to say, Andy and I talk about this like off microphone and I have to say with the Lima storyline this season in Season 4, it's all about Rhea establishing and establishing old characters that stay behind and new ones that we've never met before like Wade, Ryder, Jake, Marley, Kitty and I think for the most part the first half of the season some of the introductions worked really well like Jake and Marley's others took a little bit of time to the flavoring of the character or the identity of the character wasn't really established until these last few episodes like Wade and Ryder but mostly I would say three out of five maybe four out of five in terms of most character introductions. What do you think about this, Andy? I feel similar. It's been different for every character. I think Marley, you know, she really stood out for me in the season premiere and Jake came out, came in second as well. Kitty took a while because she's been one of the most controversial characters on the show so far with her racist, homophobic, offensive comments that she's just been throwing around and not receiving any consequence for. But, and, uh, but you know, at this point, from the two last episodes, I've been actually starting liking her a lot. You know, I liked her guilty pleasure, which was Spice Girls and so on. And, you know, she's been, she's been much more positive now, but, you know, it's still in her own badass way because like, she is basically Quinn and Santana melted together as one, but in a different way. And uh, but but I agree. Some of them has been eh. Some of them has been yay. And but yeah, I would give them a four out of five if I would put them all together and so on. But but yeah, it's been uh, but yeah, reestablishment and establishment has been a, a huge theme for the season, and it's been working really well so far. Yeah. Um. With the kitty thing, and I think we I re- just realized off microphone while we were discussing about kitty. Here's the thing with kitty. Kitty does horrible things. Yes. But we've most of our listeners have gone through high school. How many horrible men and women have you met that have done horrible things or have said horrible things to other people with little or no consequences? I mean, that happens often. I think we've been, just because uh, and Andy and I, between us both, have watched a lot of teen dramas. There's almost, it's like a cliche now that once, once a character does a bad thing, sooner or later they have to get their comeuppance about it. Too. But that's who? I think Ryan Murphy did something very smart in the sense of just, like, having Kitty do horrible things and but slowly and surely not have the group like turn on her like a la Quinn back in season one a little bit but have her more have it more be like an actual high school thing where you know they uh, they know they know she she's done horrible things but but you know we're just gonna accept her and move on because there's more important things like regional like national to look forward to yes. speaking of looking forward to things one of the things that I kind of skipped over in my intro and we had I, I just want to get it over with is the Emma and Will storyline in, in Lila. I love Will Schuster. I love Matthew Morrison and I love Jimma Mays and Emma Pillsbury. But there's a term in the United States called do it or get off the pot and it, it involves going to the bathroom but uh, people like equate it to just do it or just don't do it at all. And this is how I feel about Will and Emma. It really has become, a, and for you Smallville fans listening, it really has become the equivalent of Clark and Lana. And really at this point, this, this 
relationship, its height was in season one. It's so much strength in season two. It was so fun in season three. But at this point, either get them together or keep them out of each other's lives forever. Because quite honest, I'm not compelled anymore. And quite honestly, taking away from a lot of good storylines, even within the line storyline of the series, what do you think, Andy? No, you said it right at, right at the end. It, their focus is taking a lot of the time from the characters that we're supposed to focus on. Sure, I'm, Will has been an, an imperative character since the first episode of the series, but at this point, we have grown away from him in a way, so we don't really need him that much. And, you know, you know, we know at the end of the day we'll get together at so, in some way or something like that, but they just, like you said, either do it or just move along because we need to focus on our Gleek people here. Yeah, and speaking of Will, uh, actually coming in on both, on two things you said, one of the things that they've done really well and see that the show can survive without Matthew Morrison for a little bit is have him do his fighting for the arts and public school thing that he's been doing for the for most of the season. And really, this ties into another character in line, Finn Hudson. I'm not going to get into Finn Hudson. We're going to talk more about him next. I think one of the things that they, they did really, really well, and I'm not being facetious at all, is have him be the substitute leader of Glee for at least a couple episodes and really show the awkwardness that he's going through, just like with our reestablishment of older characters, not older, but, you know, characters from seasons past who didn't go to New York, like Blaine Anderson, like Tina, like Brittany. I really like what they did with Brittany this season. Not only getting her with Sam, who also really is hit or miss. He's either really, really important to the story or really, really not. I really liked how they let Brittany stand on her own, and and by doing so, like, redeemed Kitty or brought Kitty into a new life with her kind of bloodhead airheadedness, which I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that just as a factual way. I really like how they made Heather Morris a character that didn't need another character to have a storyline. Same thing with Court Overstreet, who pretty much has the same problem. I think, and we didn't talk about this, Andy and I, offline before. His best episode was the calendar episode. Would you agree for this season, Andy? That episode and last week's episode, because of what he did with Blaine's guilty pleasure. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry we're rushing this, guys, but there's just a lot of things we have to cover. Tina, I have to say, we saw this at, in the dream sequence episode last season. I really hope they bring Tina Cohen Shane back for the fifth season, even if she graduates, because there's a lot of things you can do with her character, negative or positive. You could do so much with her character and showing that bitterness and the kind of pent-up anger she's had at where she is in life and where she is in the Glee Club. Whether you love it or whether you hate it, it's compelling nonetheless. I really wasn't a big fan of the Blaine storyline, but for what it was, it gave her a character and it gave her some shape that we never saw before. What do you think about that, Andy? About Blaine? Yes, I think they've been, he's been so fleshed out this season, being, a, being more than just Kurt Hummel's love interest because he has so much depth in his character and there's so much that we still don't know about him but you know we see how emotional he is and how it, how, how beautiful he can put it into songs and everything like that and that's something I've been really enjoying and I think you have as well if I'm correct. Yeah and his relationship with Tina I was asking you more about the Tina thing but going to Blaine because you and I agree about Tina going to Blaine I think this is Darren Chris's like standout performance of the series like overall because uh, and we talked about this off my microphone as well. His only purpose in the show for the longest time for the longest time. I'm just kidding. His only storyline, his only purpose was to be a love interest or a boyfriend to Kurt. Now we see, especially with like him running for student council, the 
superhero stuff, the kind of competition with the Warblers. You see him not as Kurt's boyfriend, but as Blaine Anderson, the character by himself. I mean, Dan Chris's singing has always been really good. I mean, there's no disputing that. But here, this season, we've got him, like, as an actual character, which I really enjoyed. Agreed. Yeah. A couple of things before we go. I want to just re- reiterate this. I don't think I said this earlier on in the episode. If I did, please forgive me. I really commend the Glee writers for doing something bold and not necessarily new because a lot of teen shows do this when characters graduate and go off to college. They split them up into two stories, the high school story and the college story. With this, they have New York and they have Lima have either very similar storylines or very different storylines. And in some episodes, it works out really well. And in some episodes, it doesn't really, really do really well. I, I commend them for trying something new. I have to say that the, and I'm not meaning this more as a criticism, I'm just trying to be as factual without being offensive. The writers really didn't know what they were doing in terms of doing two different storylines for the first half of the season, but I think after our last hiatus, not the one we're on now, but this last one that we just came back from, I really think they got it down. What do you think, Andy? I agree, Foley. You know, they, you know it's been, I think that's the thing, even though if this is a concept that has already existed in our TV show, I think it's different for every team of writers that, that handles with that. So I think they really found yeah. their place now with this kind of uh, theme for this show. Because it's not easy for a writing team, let alone a couple of writers, to write two storylines in two different places with almost two different casts. I mean, it is two different casts because even if the characters interact, it's not they're not in the same places emotionally. So it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Exactly. But I'm afraid that's yeah. all the time we have, Wu. So we have to wrap it Unfortunately, up. Unfortunately, yes. But we'll be back one week from now to talk about New York because there's a lot of things we have to talk about. Oh, yes. But who do we have to thank, Andy? Uh, we have to thank our forum that we have that you guys can visit and talk about Glee as much as you want. So go to acrosstheairways.com slash forums and go to the Glee section and talk about as much as Glee as you want to. Throw your fears at and see what we think of it. And you can also visit my boss forum, Craig Byrne, on keysidetv.com slash forums and go to the Glee section there. Make sure to tell him and the other uh, readers that, that we sent you. I think he's going to be very happy to see you guys there. But until then, we will see you next week. Next week, Andy. Bye. Bye. Thanks, guys, for your thoughts on Glee. Now let's move on to the voicemail section. Sci-Fi's powerful Mondays, FX, and USA. Characters welcome. EMT, we know trauma. In this week's section, we have a voicemail from Wu about How I Met Your Mother. I wanted to stop by with my thoughts on this week's episode of How I Met Your Mother called The Time Travelers. For those who have seen the episode, I really enjoyed the Marshall and Robin arguing over the drinks. I really loved the dance contest joke. I loved the time traveling joke with the future Ted and future, future Barney and the 20 minutes later Barney and that kind of thing. I also love the uh, Marshall not realizing what Carl's last name is. I always thought it was McLaren because there actually is a guy on the High Mature Mother's staff named Carl McLaren. That's where they got the name from. That's what Craig Thomas said on the, the first appearance of Robin Sparkles episode. I love the return of Gemma Mays as the Kojak girl from the season one episode, Okay Awesome. I think that was like episode eight of season one. I'm pretty sure this was before Gemma Mays got really well known, of course, from her role on Glee. I assume that since she's not a 
series regular on Glee, that, that's why she was able to do this little guest starring role on How I Met Your Mother, both Glee and How I Met Your Mother, 20th Century Fox shows, so I'm assuming that that's, that that's why she was able to do that, and we did get the information that that relationship never took off between her and Ted. We never understood why until this episode. It took us seven years, but we finally got the answer to it. I love the, the thing with her, and I love that she didn't even really have to speak to Ted in the present time, I should say, to understand why it wouldn't work out. I'm hurrying this along because I really wanted to get this in. Josh Radner's monologue to his quote-unquote wife. I think I've been waiting for that scene since the pilot episode when he told Robin out on her dupe what he wanted out of his love life and why he didn't understand the rules of love. Everything Ted in his monologue pretty much what I've always wanted in my own life. And I'll be very honest to the listeners because I can only be honest here. I've often wondered whether or not I'll find the love of my life, and I've often wondered, you know, is that ever going to happen? And this might sound cheesy, if I never find the love of my life, I do love the fact that Ted will find his. Because quite honestly, like I've said on this podcast many, many times, Ted, I'm more of a Ted than anybody else on this series. This is why I've stuck with the series so long. Don't get me wrong, I love Barney, I love Marshall, I love the girls, but my emotional investment in Ted finding the love of his life, I don't know, it might sound weird, but in a way, if Ted wins, I win. That's how I've always felt. Again, I cannot wait for the last couple episodes. These last few episodes have felt so season one and season two in terms of structure. There really wasn't any outlandish storyline, and it really took place all in the confines of McLaren's, which I thought was really nice. A really nice old school change to where it used to be. And even with Neil Patrick Harris talking to Ted in the booth about how Ted's imagining all this in his head that Ted wanted to go to Robots vs. Wrestlers and no one else could because they were busy with other other things really reminded me of that episode last season where Robin where Robin is talking to her future kids and then we find out at the end of that episode, I think it was also the Christmas episode of season 7, that the kids weren't real and that she was basically thinking this entire episode in her head pretty much. Again, one more thing about the monologue. That monologue pretty much encapsulates everything Ted's been over the last. And ultimately, I think the payoff is going to be fantastic. I really, not only do I want to meet the mother, I really want to find out who it is. I mean, I know it's not, those sound similar, but they're really not. Because we know the woman's going to be awesome. I just want to know w- what actress they casted to play this awesome, awesome woman that is Ted Mosby's true love. Well, anyway, guys, this will be our last time with your mother for about a month, another month hiatus. I'll be back then. Talk to you guys later. Back to Dan and Nico. Bye. And a second one from Wu about Supernatural. Hey, Dan and Nico, I normally don't cover Supernatural because you guys do such an awesome job with that, but I felt I needed to cover this week's episode of Supernatural called Freaks and Geeks. I loved the nod to Puffy the Vampire Slayer for... Some of our audience that may be listening to us right now know Eric Kripke was a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. Just like Andy Babak, myself, Dan and Nico are, we're trying to convince Michael J. Petty to watch a couple of episodes, but he's being very resistant, but whatever. The, the guy who plays Victor, 
to do a quick side note. He plays the exact same character in season six of Smallville, mentoring a meteor-infected blind person that can sense other meteor-infected people because they have they give off a certain aura. And again, he plays almost the exact same character with almost the exact same demeanor. I find that very, very funny. Just because, like, the CW and WB really likes to use actors over and over again for almost the exact same part in different shows. Whether it be Arrow, Supernatural, Psych, Smallville, Human Target. I really, I really just enjoyed, like, the blatant recasting. But anyway, once again, I loved the nod to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And also the nod to a storyline that Joss Whedon has always replayed again in Angel and on Buffy. That just because something's supposed to be evil, like a demon or a monster, they're not necessarily 100% evil on the same side or on a different side. Just because somebody's human and supposed to be a good guy isn't necessarily a good guy or a hero. And I love the aspect of taking hunting a little bit too far. Actually breeding hunters like monsters would breed other monsters. And it's a question of do the ends justify the means? And I get what Victor's trying to do, but literally lying to these kids, grooming them just to make humanity a stronger breed, that's no different than what monsters are doing or what demons do in the previous seven seasons of the show, trying to cultivate their community. Not to go too long here, but this episode actually sets up season nine in a way, and possibly the end of the series, about where, you know, these supernatural occurrences or hunters or monsters could go long after the Winchesters may be gone. I like that aspect. And I also like the aspect of the Vicar character almost being the anti-Giles to this version of Willow, Xander, and Buffy. Because really, not all mentors are looking out for their ward's best interest. And not all mentors have to be, you know, the most emotionally stable people. Bobby and John Winchester might not have been the best role models for Sam and Dean to follow, but they loved Sam and Dean. They cared for Sam and Dean. And they wanted to look out for their best interests. And yeah, they didn't, Sam and Dean did not have a normal life. But at least Bobby and John Winchester cared for them. Like I said, one of the beauties of Supernatural and Angel and Buffy, like, and they do this constantly. Life is not always black and white. Sometimes there's shades of gray. Sometimes that shades of gray can be dark or light. But anyway, guys, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I think this was my favorite standalone episode of this season eight. And I really like, again, I sound like a broken record on these podcasts, but I really like what Jeremy Carver and Robert Singer are doing with this season of Supernatural. I really wanted to go to 10 seasons, but I really doubt it, especially what happened last week with Meg. Again, I don't want to spoil it for any of the listeners who haven't seen who haven't seen the episode. But anyway, guys, I'll talk to you later, hopefully again, about Supernatural. And again, please listen to Michael J. Petty and his Longbow Hunters. We got a lot of new content coming your way. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Thanks, Wu, again for your great comments on both shows this week. We look forward to hearing from you, and maybe some of our other listeners next week will have some comments to play in the voicemail section. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail like Wu, you can call us at 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback. Hope to hear from some of you soon. Yes, and with that, we're going to move on to the closing for this week's jam-packed episode. Again, Nico, tell our audience how it's going to be even more jam-packed next week. 
Yeah, on next week's episode, we will have reviews of our favorites, including for the first time on this podcast, the season three premiere of Game of Thrones, Castle, Modern Family, Supernatural, Psych, Community, Go On, on Thursday night this week, Big Bang, and Person of Interest. And don't forget, Doctor Who. We will round things out with another Airwaves Rundown section featuring our brief thoughts on the Walking Dead finale, the Justified finale, the following, Revolution, Arrow, and my new favorite, The Americans, and much more. For even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on the website at acrosstheairwaves.com. Also, while you're waiting for our next ATA episode to come out, you can check out our spinoff podcasts, ATA Retro Reviews, which covers shows that were canceled or went out on their own terms. We have Across the Airwaves DC Nation podcast dedicated to covering all the imaginative content DC Comics provides for its fans, including movies, cartoon shows, comics, and much more. And also, we have ATA Longball Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which covers the hits CW TV series in much more detail. That's a show hosted by our friends on the podcast, Michael J. Petty and Wu Kim. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us by visiting our newly updated and improved website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. There you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. You can also click the button on our page to like our Facebook. Through doing that, you will stay updated on our podcast episode releases and also be able to follow all the entertainment news that Nico reports on during our Across the Airways episodes. And for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter is Across the Airways. There's no the on there. It's just Across the Airwaves. Or you can join our circle on Google+. Also, if you'd like, you can leave us a voicemail. Okay, what number can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. And with that, you can give us your thoughts or feedback on any of the shows we cover or our podcast in general. So uh, if you're interested, do that. Also, if you'd like, you can check out our YouTube channel, which features previews and promos for all sorts of Across the Airwaves events, as well as upcoming movies. Also available on our YouTube channel is a playlist of the DC Nation shorts that is shown during the Saturday morning programming block on Cartoon Network. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast to listen to all the ways you could contact us, you could download our podcast box app, which will let you contact our podcast and listen to our podcast episodes on your iPad and iPhone. And if you're on an Android or Windows device, you could download our Android app from the Amazon Marketplace to get that same content. So again, that's our podcast episode and ways you could contact us. So, once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Rustic. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. And I hope everyone enjoyed this week's premiere of Game of Thrones, because we can't wait to review it next week. See ya! Now return to our regularly scheduled program.